Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Howard Swine, your horny host that's hung with the most. Though I hate to boast, I'm big as a post and warm as toast. That was almost like as soon as I saw this movie for the first time, before I even knew we were going to do a Paul Bartel series months ago, I said I have to open the podcast with that line. Because not only is it a great line, but now, since we're continuing on with our Paul Bartel series, Howard Swine... The horny host that's hung with the most, though I hate to boast, I'm big as a post and warm as toast, is Junior Bruce, our announcer from Death Race 2000. It's fantastic. I hope that I can be Don Steele for all of the episodes in this podcast, but I think that's going to break next week. So, like I already said, we're continuing on with the Paul Bartell series. Before we get into the Paul Bartell movie for this week, I'm going to blindside Zach. We have to talk about an email that we received. I think it's an email that Zach did not look at. Uh, I don't know if Zach monitors the spam folder as closely (laughs) as Rob does, but it's another spam email that absolutely blew me away. So here we go. Uh, And and yes, I think Zach and I and Cinemati's Restaurant, we consider uh, spam emails to be fan emails. They're one and the same. (laughs) Not to disenfranchise any actual fans, but... In our spam folder, Zach, we received it three days ago from the time of this recording. It is from Isabel Cohen. The email address is Isabel.Cohen, and Cohen is in all caps. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something going on because we did the Cohen brothers in the Hudsucker Proxy. Because, you know, we talked about how we've gotten spam emails for taking out loans and things like that. And every, every week we talk about needing money for the restaurant. But when I looked at this spam email, it blew me away because while it's from Isabel Cohen, this is the entire text of the email in all caps. It came to us in complete capitalization. Here we go. Hello. I have an offer for you. Regards, Annie Chen. That's it. That is it. That's the entirety of the fucking email. There's no link to click. There's no request for information. It's just, I have an offer for you. <laughs> hey, directly I, to the point. I, I, I'm laughing, just like I was laughing this last few days when I saw this spam email. What the hell? How? I know Google's algorithms for spam email. They, they look at the email address and where it came from, if it's sending too much, if we've never received email from them before, blah, blah, blah. But... This is so few words for a spam email. This blows me away. I have an offer for you, Annie Chen. <laughs> I had to I had to get that out there because I, I found this so funny. We don't know what the offer is. We don't know if it's from Isabel Cohen or Annie Chen, the person who signed the email. But rest assured, Cinemodities fans, as soon as Rob received this, or as soon as he saw it in the uh, spam folder... He responded with a plethora of dick pics, and we're waiting to hear oh, that. Oh yeah, high five! I think that's just that's the cinemodities, you know, kind of hallmark at this point. If we get an email, if it says I have an offer for you, I want to be your special friend, like one we talked about. If <laughs> hits us up saying, 
He uh, he doesn't want to give no, details. Oh, 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 shit! <laughs> I realize Barry. Oh, there's gonna be a bleep in there. If Barry emails <laughs> us about sex four times, uh, you get dick pics, and it's a it's an amalgamation. It's some of my dicks, some of Zach's dicks, some of dicks you might not know who they're from. Uh, but that's kind of you know our hallmark on cinemodities. So. I guess to end this folks, little bit, it's not it's it's not mine, folks. I'm taking somebody else's picture. <laughs> oh, I'm passing oh, it off. As my okay, own. okay. I guess to end this segment, then I want to say, um, uh, Isabel Cohen or Annie Chen or anybody who wants to spam email us, um, you might have an offer for us. Well, we got an offer for you <laughs> in the form of dick pics. Hey yo, where's the rap horn? I need the button. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, with that being said, I I don't think Zach has any other email or administrative stuff to go through. We can get right into the uh, probably the highlight of our Paul Bartel series with Eating Raul. Are you ready? I'm ready, Rob. I've been three weeks ready. Three? Yes. I I guess it should be said that, uh, that a few weeks ago, Zach and I sat down to record this exact episode in our Paul Bartel series. As we often do, you know, we, you know, might get a uh, Zach gets a cup of tea. Rob gets a large glass of alcohol. We sit down. We uh, we say, are you ready? You know, we're going to work together. We're going to record this episode. But we didn't. We were kind of, we had this recording taken away from us. Because as soon as we sat down to start to record, we were interrupted by goddamn swingers. These fucking swingers, Zach. Am I right? These degenerates. What hey, can we say about them? I know they're everywhere. Try walking to our apartment, or they're behind us in our goddamn elevators. Disgusting. Oh, fucking swingers, degenerates! They just want to have sex with everything and everyone. And oh, I, I think that's the motif we're taking on this episode. Right? Is that Zach and I are wholesome people? If you've listened to all a hundred plus episodes of Cinemodities, you know that Zach and I are wholesome. We don't take shit. We go to church. We pray. We make sure that our, our family's taken care of. We don't care for these riff-raff, hippie types of lifestyles, right? No, not in the slightest. Not at all. And that's why we had to discuss Eating Raul, the Paul Bartel movie that gets at exactly this fact, that the people who are good and well-off and they can take care of themselves, what other choice is for them than to kill the degenerates and make money off of it. It's just the, the logical conclusion. Especially when you have a restaurant you want to get funded. Oh, yes. You bring up a great point, which, um, all kidding aside, even though the mentioning of a Cinematis restaurant is a joke in and of itself, have we ever talked about a movie where our main characters were actually, their motivation, their consistency was based around a restaurant? Have we ever done that? Or is this the first time we're actually talking about two characters, uh, Mary and Paul Bland, whose goal is to create a restaurant, just like you and I have? Yes, yeah, so we've already created it, right, Rob? Oh, I mean, of course, you know. We're, I, a ste- we're a step that they haven't reached yet. It's in Times Square, New York, yes, where yes. Mars 2112 used to be. It's underground, it's infinite, and it's going to be mobile one day. Uh, if anybody in the audience is laughing, is laughing, stop laughing. It's not a joke. We own and operate this restaurant. Yes, you can go there right now. I mean, you're going to get turned away because we have very selective clientele. Uh, there's no vacancy in the Cinematis restaurant. <laughs> Throwback to private parts. But 
uh, it's totally real. Like, what do you what do you think? And this is a bit like get it get out of your own head, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a jerk. You can't come to our restaurant. You can't sit with us. Yes, you're banned. <laughs> so, eating Raul. I have to give some history on this before I get into the Paul Bartel history specifically. I have to mention, just like on the private parts episode, we talked a lot about how one day Zach and I were talking to each other and he said, oh, I, I found this movie on TCM Underground. The summary is a man is interested in filling body bags with water. And I was like, okay, you got my attention. And the rest is history. You can go back and listen to that episode. This was kind of the next step in our Paul Bartel formation where Zach hit me up one day and he was like, hey, I found another movie, Eating Raul. It's by the same guy who did Private Parts. It's uh, our doctor from the Reckless, Use, Reckless Youth uh, in Amazon Women on the Moon sketch, Eating Raul. And if I remember correctly, when you and I talked about this, you said to me, this is a neat little movie or something along those lines, right? Something like that. And I watched it after a while. I think it took me some time, but I watched it. And I think the next time I talked to Zach, I was like, hey, I watched Eating Raul and I fucking loved it. Like I, I had not laughed at a movie in so long. And and that's exactly where my context comes from. Is there anything else you want to add? Or was this really just something you found randomly because you knew the name Paul Bartel and just felt you needed to share it with me? No, I don't even think it was Paul Bartel. I think it was after that I watched it that I figured out it was him. I did research on it. Okay. Because I found private parts I found back in like very early in Cinematis, like back like in May of 2018. Yes, yes. Cinem- anyway- cinematic masterpiece, private parts. Yes. <laughs> Yes, right. <laughs> and then when it came to eating Raul, I didn't find that until like almost like a year and a half later. Like it was just September of last year that I came across this again. And I can remember watching it because I know Turner Classic Movies Underground changed their thing where they stopped doing it on Saturday nights. They started doing it like on Friday nights going into Saturday mornings. Okay. And one Saturday morning, I woke up and uh, I recorded it and it seemed interesting enough. I'm like, okay, let me watch this. And I was hooked by the first two minutes. The first two minutes of the movie were just kind of so zany and over the top. I, my God. I, I oh couldn't my turn God. it off. I agree and... with you. We're going we're gonna to talk about specific scenes. And I, I have, I think I mentioned to Zach when we were rudely interrupted by swingers, when we recorded this episode, 90% of my notes are just quotes of this movie. <laughs> I figure as much. Excuse me. Would you mind emptying the register? The robber says, as he points the gun at Paul Bartel, like he says, excuse me. It's, it's fucking fantastic. Yeah, it's it's something else. <laughs> it is. It's 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 fabulous. And it really is. Like even like I think I was kind of enamored with this before I even got to that point. I think it's just the opening montage alone kind of captured my imagination. Oh, you're absolutely right. Constant sexual stimulation through life and advertisements will warp even the most normal of citizens. That type of thing. Yeah, and you have all the people, you have like grandma and grandpa like looking outside the Fredericks of Hollywood, somebody doing blow, somebody playing with themselves, a woman walking down the street and she gets kind of like tackled into a, a car. Oh yeah, it's uh, the prostitutes on the street corner. Oh, it's, it's this is this is a fantastic movie. Um, I, I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but I think where I want to start to ask Zach's opinion, um, if if anybody. Any film critic or film buff or, you know, maybe even taking it down to the bottom level of us 
what what do we what do we usually say? Fifteenth rate film critics on a seventeen thousandth rate podcast. Oh, stop it! Now, now you're just being <laughs> hyperbolic. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Um, if if you say something like that, if you know Paul Bartel, when you hear Paul Bartel, you're going to think of this movie, Eating Raul, before you think of things like Death Race 2000 or anything else. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think Clash Struggles, another one of his films that people, I yes. think. Maybe, Tune in what three weeks from now for that episode, <laughs> something like that. No, I think I think originally it probably was Clash Struggle was okay. was kind of probably probably his movie, but over time it's probably slowly gone to eating Raoul. Mm-hmm. And, and it should be said that like Paul Bartel is still like definitively underground. He is by no means a mainstream filmmaker like, like we yeah, said before did, he's an actor i would imagine most people if anything would ever recognize him as an actor first and then a director okay. second yeah what did we say last week or the the book we write on paul bartell will be called paul bartell the most influential filmmaker you've never heard of that yes. type of thing <laughs> yeah exactly oh yeah <laughs> oh and and so uh, yeah eating raul we're gonna have to get into i think um you, you bring up a good point with uh scenes from the class struggle of from beverly hills because that is a very popular movie um, but when I do my research these days, it seems that eating Raul kind of works its way up to the top to some extent. And I'm very happy to talk about this because, as we said, we're going to do our Paul Bartell history and context with each episode. Um, this is not the next movie after Death Race 2000, which we talked about last week. It's two movies after. So right after Death Race 2000... Uh, Roger Corman once again tapped into ball, Paul Bartel for the movie Cannonball that came out in 1976, a year after Death Race 2000. And from my research, what I found is that for his directing and acting in Death Race 2000, Paul Bartel was paid five grand. <laughs> That's insane. That's unheard of in the movie industry. That's a very low number. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, but again, this is Roger Corman, so I'm not too surprised. Oh, that's, a, that's a good point. <laughs> Stretching that budget as far as it can go. So after Death Race 2000, Paul Bartel desperately needed money, and he accepted the work on Cannonball. Um, I don't think Zach has seen Cannonball, but I watched it. You know, As we go through the series, I'm watching all of Paul Bartel's directorial movies in chronological order. Cannonball is very similar to Death Race 2000, but it takes away the dystopian aspect and the satirical aspects. It's filled with a lot more Paul Bartel strangeness, I would say. So David Carradine is in it. He's the titular character, uh, Cannonball. He has a name, but everybody calls him Cannonball, so that's just what I know him as. And there's some weird stuff where, like, Cannonball is on parole from jail because he went to jail for killing a kid while he was drunk driving. Um, but the movie starts with him in bed with a woman and like three minutes in, it's revealed that the woman he's in bed with is his probation officer. So he's having sex with his parole officer, probation officer, whatever it is. And she's like, I don't want you to go on this race. And he's like, I'm going to go on this race, but you should come with me. And she does. And the whole movie's about kind of a transcontinental road race. That is just a race. Like, it's who get the, who gets their first wins. And there's some really weird stuff in it, like uh, a favorite of Cinemodities, which probably hasn't come up in a while, but Dick Miller is in it as David Carradine's Yay. brother. And Dick Miller, like, bets on the race that Cannonball will win. 
but the person he gets the money from and he's betting is played by Paul Bartel. And when it gets later in the movie and Dick Miller is like, okay, I want to kind of rescind my bet. Paul Bartel is like, you can't do this. There's this really weird, surreal scene where Paul Bartel is playing piano and singing. Like, not a song I know. I think it's a made-up song. While two people kick the shit out of Dick Miller. Like, they're beating him to a bloody pulp. And Paul Bartel is playing the piano and singing in the background. Hello, Benny. Look, Lester, You're I... late, Benny. I don't like tardiness. And it seems to run in your family. Your brother's not winning. Look, Lester, I'm taking care of it. I don't want to hear it, Benny. This, this is not the I answer. I don't want to hear it, Benny. This is... Oh, Jesus! Sorry, I'm sincere when I say I'm sorry that it ended this way. Everything looked so fine at the start. I never dreamed that you'd break my heart. I'm sorry that I'm hurting you so, but sometimes that's the way that it goes. You let me down, you made me so blue, but now I know that you're sorry too. There's a there's a scene that makes no sense in the movie where it's it's a wide shot of Paul Bartel in the middle. To the left of him is Martin Scorsese, and to hmm. the right of him is Sylvester Stallone. And they're all eating, like they're having lunch together. And Martin Scorsese says something like, what are you going to do if he doesn't pay you the money? And Paul Bartel says, well, I'll break his legs. And it's like a, it's like a 10 second shot of just famous people all in one scene. It's, it's very much something that I think Paul Bartel wanted to do, at least from the research I found. Um, the one other thing about Cannonball I will point out is because it is very much like a, uh, a rat race or a mad, 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 mad world type of movie where they're trying to complete an objective. Um, the winner of the race, spoiler alert, skip ahead if you don't want to know, <laughs> is Robert Carradine, David Carradine's brother, the Revenge of the Nerds guy. They end up winning the race. And it's it's a very strange movie. I don't really know if I would say I liked it, but I respected it because it was much more Paul Bartel than Roger Corman. Other than that, because like we said, 1976, Cannonball came out. Paul Bartel turns more towards acting um, because uh, Eating Raul comes out in 1982. So prior to Eating Raul, uh, he appears in uh, a lot of things. I just picked a few to talk about here. Uh, he appears in Ron Howard's movie Grand Theft Auto, which I've never seen. He appears in Joe Dante's Piranha, which I've also never seen, but I've read a lot about. And he appears in a movie... From Alan Arkish called Heartbeeps. And I want to take a slight detour here. Zach, have you ever heard of this movie Heartbeeps? I have not, Rob. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, I want to do something that, um, that Zach has done before, but Rob has never taken advantage of. I want to get a real-time reaction from you, Zach. Oh, Just boy. like we did in Meet Joe Black with the... Spoiler alert, Brad Pitt get hit by what? 60 cars in the matter of 10 seconds. <laughs> I would I would like you go I would like you to go to Google Images, okay, and type in heart beeps. So the word heart, the word beeps and then One word? film. One word, heart beeps. Heart beeps film. And the I want you to see the first image 
that comes up on Google Images, which okay. is the poster for this movie. The, I had the, never heard of Heartbeeps prior to this either. The one I've never that, seen like, like the one with the robot? Yes. And at the, at the top of the page, it says Andy Coffin and Bernadette Peters in Heartbeats. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about this picture? What do you think about seeing people playing robots just because they have a shitload of makeup on their face? Yeah, I, I'm seeing some other stills from this. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little disconcerting. It's, uh... I, I, this is, you know... I'm not even going to call it Uncanny Valley. This is Dark Crystal level. Like, this scares me when I look at it, you know? It's very unsettling. So I had never heard of this film. When I was doing my research, I heard about, oh, Heartbeeps. Paul Bartel was in Heartbeeps. What is this? And I, the little bit, it's like, oh, it's PG. It's a romance comedy. Okay. I pull up the synopsis, and I start to read. And I'm going to give you a real-time Rob reaction right here. I start to read the following. While at a repair factory, a robot valet meets Aqua, a fellow automaton who functions as a party hostess. Okay, no problem with that. Two robots, no issue. Next sentence. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Remarkably, the two robots discover that they are in love. Oh, boy. I don't think I've ever wanted to throw my computer across the room harder than reading this synopsis. Heartbeeps is about everything I fucking hate about robots. Robots cannot fall in love. Robots do not have human abilities. Okay, that's beside the point, Zach. But I wanted to take this small detail because apparently Paul Bartel was in this movie called Heartbeeps. And I've never seen it, but I'm going to steadfastly say right now, it's the stupidest thing to ever exist. <laughs> but it's a... It's, uh... Yeah, it's it looks odd. Like it's it's funny. It just got a Blu-ray release like in the last like less than a month oh. ago. Whoa! What the fuck? God damn it! <laughs> this is giving me heartburn. <laughs> yeah, it's very very unsettling. Yeah, the, if for anybody out in the audience, just like we've done with the real time reactions, we suggest you Google this as well. Look at the picture, and um, uh, this is kind of a Rorschach test. If you look at this and you don't feel immediate disgust and the need to vomit, you probably have something wrong with you, and you should seek out medical uh, professional help. Right? Again, I, I it's <laughs> on a visual level, it's very, very peculiar looking. Oh yeah, I, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see robots having human emotions. That is a stupid concept, and always will be. Um, it seems to me like a, almost like a kitty family film from what I'm looking at. Yeah, it, it is rated PG. It's um, only 79 minutes long. Uh, yeah, it's short. Uh, from I'm guessing from the poster because I, I steadfastly stopped reading the synopsis. I'm guessing that there's there's this smaller robot. I'm guessing that they have a kid robot to some extent, which, you know, fuck that. But um, if if you're into this stuff, maybe this is a movie for you. I mean, it is Andy Kaufman. If you're an Andy Kaufman completionist, maybe this is something you need to see. But um, I think Cinemodities is steadfastly giving it a stamp of never again. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's peculiar looking, that's for sure. Yes. So I don't, I don't know who Paul Bartel plays in it, but um, when I was looking at his what he did between Cannonball and Eating Raul... This popped up, and I was like, oh, heartbeeps. What's that? That sounds crazy. And I read those two sentences, and uh, I, uh, I, I turned off the internet for the rest of the night. <laughs> it actually was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup. 
Oh my god. Oh my god. Can we retroactively rescind that? Do they do that at the Academy Awards? Like they they I know they give like the they nominate people for certain things because it's kind of like, oh, we we missed when they were really good in something that retroactively we know they were great in, like a, a lifetime achievement type of thing. Can we rescind previous stuff? Like now we know it was terrible. Can we just scrub that from history? This is the weirdest Eating Raul episode ever, but it actually says that, again, it's funny, we've been talking for half an hour, we haven't gotten to the movie yet, but it says the reviews were so negative that Andy Kaufman felt that he had to apologize for the movie on Late Night with David Letterman. <laughs> And promise to refund the money. And promise to refund the money of every person who paid to see it. Hot damn! Hot damn! And Letterman's yeah. response was that if Kaufman wanted to issue such a refund, he'd better have change for a twenty. <laughs> right on. That's a, that's yeah. a good joke. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it's not very good. Apparently, it has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes too. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm I'm never gonna watch it. I hope you never watch it, Zach. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to think you're in more trouble if you watch this than pixels. Like we've talked about earlier. If, if somebody watches pixels, they need help. If you tell me you watch this, Zach, like I'm, you're going to get a wellness check. Like people are showing up at your doorstep, making sure you're okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I kind of want to watch the trailer now, but. Oh God. I did not <laughs> watch this trailer. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to even watch the trailer. It's called heart beeps. Heart beep heart beeps. It should be called heart beep boop trash can. <laughs> in an ideal world, Rob. In an ideal oh, world. If Rob had his way. <laughs> All right, Rob. We're 25 minutes into this. Can we please get to the part where we start munching on Raul? Finally, yes. We've gotten through our, our spam emails. We've gotten through our history of Paul Bartel. Now it comes to, well, how did this movie happen? Paul Bartel and his writing partner, Richard Blackburn, wrote this script together. They had a lot of faith in it, so much so that Bartel tried to finance this movie on his own from his self and his family. And what I found that this movie ranged in budget from 230 grand to 350 grand. So it was, you know, relatively cheap, but it had a box office run in 1982 of what I found 1.1 million. So this movie was successful to some extent. Mm-hmm. And now in this day and age, 2020, this this podcast is talking about it. Other podcasts talk about it. This is something that I would say is steadfastly a cult classic. If you know about this movie and you're a film person, you respect it to some extent. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. Obviously, when it got the Criterion Collection treatment, I think that kind of solidified mm-hmm. that sort of standing in the film community. Absolutely. And there's not much more history I could find. I do want to talk a little later on about some bonus features that Zach and I watched uh, that get more at, you know, um, Robert Beltrand and Mary Warrenov, uh, Raul and Mary, respectively, in this movie. They talk about the film. Um, but I think other than that, we can dive right into it. And I want to I want to make the the I think I might have already said it, but I'm going to say it again now that we're starting discussion of this film. This is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I, I really haven't laughed this hard at a movie, not in a long time, but ever. Like, you know, when I think about movies that really make me laugh in the long run, no matter how many times I see them, you know, sure, there's things like The Hangover. The first time I saw that, I loved it, but it fell by the wayside. The things that really last for me are Eating Raul and... Aqua Teen Hunger Force, colon, movie film for theaters. That's one of the greatest and funniest films ever. But we're not talking about that today. We're not talking about Time Lincoln. 
and space slavery. Uh, we're talking about eating Raul. And I wanted to get your opinion. Do you find this hilarious, Zach? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's a very funny film. It has a very, very dry wit to it. My type of humor, for sure. Oh, definitely. And it has those over-the-top elements, too. It's also, it's very much in the same realm as something like a Hudsucker proxy. A lot of the dialogue is witty and quick, and if, you, if you're not focusing on the movie, you're going to miss some fantastic jokes. Exactly. So it's actually no surprise that this is right up Rob's alley, now that I think about it. Sure. <laughs> so I, I guess I have to ask you, how do you want to break this down? Um, do we want to talk about scene by some scenes? Of course we will, but do you think... You know, maybe like private parts, this is more of a, a movie we discussed the meaning of? Or what were your thoughts for this one? Well, we got to give some level of summary for this, because this isn't exactly uh, mass-consumed mm. entertainment. So I think Good some point. summaries in order before we delve into I think to, to break this down on a scene-by-scene level is maybe robbing it of its essence. I, th- I think a lot of this kind of individual scenes in the vacuum aren't funny. Like you kind of describe, especially toward the end where you have the, the dominatrix and you have um, Paul, <laughs> yeah, and you have her show up without Raul. And I think if you if you try to describe that, you lose the the humor of it. I think you kind oh. of rob it of its essence. Oh, beat me, Doris. Work me. Make me write bad checks. <laughs> oh, beat me, Doris. Whip me. Make me write bad checks. <laughs> That's what I mean, folks. He's laughing right now, though. But right now at home, you're like, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What? Like, what does this mean? And I know, I, I don't want to give it away. We'll have to talk about... This movie might have the greatest shot of any movie I've ever seen in terms of comedy. And we'll get to it. It deals with Doris. With Rob, her give the summary. Outfit. Rob, give okay. the summary. Who did the summary for Death Race? Well, I don't. we don't even switch off, so I guess, okay, I'll do it, because I love <laughs> this movie, and I do I love Paul Vartel. But okay, so, this movie is about a couple. Paul and Mary Bland. Yes, their last name is Bland, like the adjectives. Something tastes bland or is bland. Paul and Mary Bland, their goal is to open a restaurant. And their motivation in this movie is that they need money so that they can purchase a, a place, a location for their restaurant. They In the beginning, they're down and out. They have some issues getting this money together. Um, we have the great line of, why don't we sell your mother's collection of fabulous 50s furniture to make the money? But as it turns out, after some down-and-out moments, they realize that they can take advantage of sexual degenerates by killing them and stealing their money and then further selling their bodies to their friend Raul to finance their restaurant. Is that a good summary? Did I miss anything? <laughs> no, you did a pretty good job. That's, okay, that's a pretty okay. nice synopsis. It is, um, it is fantastic, the concept, because Paul and Mary Bland, as their name suggests, they are very uh, prudish, I would say. They sleep in separate beds. Um, if, we, if they ever talk about sex between the two of them, it's very much like, you know, oh, I, I love a little good cuddle every now and then. You know, you don't really get that overt sexuality from them. But they are faced with that constant sexual stimulation, not only from society, but from literally all the people around them. From Doris to Dominatrix, the swingers down the hallway, things like that. And they find that it's okay to kill these people because they're degenerates and steal their money. And it's a fantastic premise. And as you might imagine, 
or as you might not guess, comedy ensues in a multitude of ways. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, that's the thing that's kind of... I, I was having a hard time trying to figure out how I want to discuss this. Because it the movie was released in 1982. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the retroactive analysis on this film, it's like, oh, it was an indictment on the 1980s culture at, at its earliest. And it's like... When Paul Bartel was making this and writing it, this was at the very, very beginning of like 1980s Reaganism. Yes. And it's like, can you, can you really? This is more like it's, uh, there was some YouTube video that I watched. And the person who did, did this had a pretty clever, astute analysis on the film. He goes, the relationship between Paul and Mary is as if. A 1950s Leave It to Beaver couple got plucked from the 50s, dropped into the 70s, and then rolled around into the 80s. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> and that's kind of what this is, because one of the things I find the most interesting, because Paul Bartel was an openly gay man for his life, mm-hmm. and yet he plays in this a very... I, I, get, I don't even want to say conservative man. Like it's almost beyond that almost. Like imagine like one step even further past conservative, but not like again, conservative, not in an ideological sense. I just mean kind of like when it comes to certain social things. Yes. Uh, conservative is a good way to put it. Maybe to remove that word, but um, he's um, uh, physically or sexually constrained. He, he's very much about his business rather than, Anything else that we get in this movie? He, he's a he's a wine connoisseur. He's a sommelier almost. Yes, he, he's he's sexually absent. Is in it's yes. not even a thing that really dawns on him. And then, and Mary, for the most part, is somewhat similar to him, but she does have that sort of opening. Because even like how we see her go to the bank and talk to the bank manager for a loan, how she dresses in that moment She's is got very to look sexy. Yep. Yes, and then even she has her sexual awakening with Raúl. Well, Raul's a bad influence. That's one of yes. my notes. One of my notes is literally just the words, Raul, you're a bad influence. And I think that's the scene where he tries to get her to smoke pot. <laughs> yes. But that's the thing that, like, it goes back to Rob and I's debate over private parts, where I have to, might have to concede more to Rob now. Because there yes. is this... <laughs> no, but, like, I know we argued over, like, the idea of, like, morality... And sexual just liberation and just mm-hmm. keeping things like behind the door. And in this, you have to wonder, like, like we talked about Paul Bartell was part of this. I don't again, I don't want to say counterculture though, because he was like I feel like he was a filmmaker first, and then like everything else came second with him. Like as in like not saying he didn't have a personal life, but it feels like what I've been able to read about him, he was not a social light in that sense like he really he he knew what he wanted to do with life and that was his priority i agree I, that that's what i found in my research that you know when he put himself to this craft he cared about the craft absolutely and in a way paul bland is the extension of him in this film sure and that's where i can't figure out when it comes to paul bartell what as you think about it, you think of a gay an openly gay man filmmaker in Hollywood in the 1970s and that in a very specific picture comes to mind mm-hmm. yet he makes these films with I don't want to say an iron clan set ironclad sense of morality but there is that very firm 
line drawn as in what's okay and what's not because even though mary mary's never scolded for giving into temptation Mm -hmm. but she comes to the realization in the end that what she's been doing is wrong yes and and that's one of my favorite parts of this movie where you know they're they're getting ready to move or pack up because you know uh leave and get ready for the restaurant and mary's like paul i have to tell you you know me and raul and he's like i know it doesn't matter like we're beyond that and and it's kind of almost this great juxtaposition of someone who is like we said so personally conservative but at the same time he is understanding and um you know absolutely accepting of his partner like uh, relation hashtag relationship goals paul but, and mary bland <laughs> but that's the thing though because like, obviously like you stated like they have their separate beds and you have all that and paul though. bartell has a full body pillow yes. in the shape of a wine bottle yes, I, I want i want that so bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know that that was funny uh but the thing though is that like there's almost and i think in today's way of describing sexuality i i don't know where to begin i feel like i'm either not going to describe it properly or i'm going to describe it so well i'm stepping on somebody's toes Mm -hmm. but there's almost like when like paul discovers that like mary's having her affair with raul he's not bothered by it like on a sexual level like he's bothered and not even like even like on like a relationship level he's just bothered by the fact that her focus is somewhere else yes the focus is no the restaurant the rest exactly and you know that i think that's part of the reason why i really appreciate paul bartell's writing and performance in this movie it's hyper focused it's 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 specialized in a way that we don't get in movies and that's not to say he's not a complex character he is a fully fleshed out character but you clearly understand as an audience member what he wants and why he wants it. And it's 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 great to see in a movie. But that's the thing that's interesting, though. Like, I don't – this is the part that obviously this is subtext. It's not meant to be delved – you can delve into it, but it's not meant to be the focus. Is that he obviously cares about Mary, mm-hmm. but he has no sort of – Beyond just like like she's almost like a glorified business partner that he lives yeah. with. Yeah, his and, view of a relationship is much more pragmatic than it is romantic, for sure. And that's what makes me wonder why he's like. I can obviously why he's there. Like they obviously share a same uh, a similar goal, and when it comes to their restaurant, but I kind of can't figure out their dynamic. Like, and I think that's, again, the best way to describe it is business partner-esque. Yeah, when you say that, it makes me think of that. That's exactly how I think I would describe it. Because even when they have, at the beginning, that first kind of 20, 30 minutes, they have their down-and-out moments where, you know, um, Mary doesn't get the loan at the bank. um, uh, Paul gets his wine stolen by the wine collector. You know, they come back at the end of the day, and they're like, you know, we're here together, and we're just talking about the failures we've had and how to move forward. And it's it. You never get any of that. Like, oh, I'm here for you, honey. Like, I'm here to take care of you. It's just like this happened. We have to deal with it. And business partner is a great way to describe that. Yeah, because like even very early in the film, Mary is made out to be a sexual creature, mm-hmm. not because she's doing it herself, but because the world around her sees her that way. These goddamn swingers. <laughs> I know it's very I think it's like the first seven minutes of the movie where that swinger drunkenly walks into their apartment and he's like, if you're not fucking her, somebody will, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing I wonder, 
like I guess what today's terminology that would be listed as what like almost like Paul Bartel because he's not gay in this he's never described as being attracted to anything it's almost as if he's asexual almost yes. as in like there's almost like I don't want to say a void but there's no interest in any sort of forget about sexual but just romantic pursuit yeah he's he's very he's very religious in the extent of not uh, when I say religious I don't mean subscribing to an organized religion but you can tell that the character has his own set of beliefs and he sticks to them wholeheartedly especially with what you've just described and in the scenes when they start to kill these degenerates the first time Paul Bartel's like I can't kill him unless he does something to you like I can't act on it unless he starts to harm you and he's very steadfast in his ways to that respect yeah cuz he cares about Mary but it's almost as in it's it's that sexual it's it's not even platonic like that's the mm-hmm. weird thing though it's like it's it's a weird sort of like step either above or below the platonic, like this sort of affection that he feels toward her yeah, or emotion. And that's where like, I kind of like, again, bring this back to Paul Bartel, the individual. I just wonder that maybe obviously who am I to question a man who's been dead for 20 years, sexual preferences. Don't remind me. I get sad every time we talk (laughs) about him being dead. I love this man, (laughs) but it makes me wonder though, like back like in the seventies, was he maybe not gay and maybe he was something like asexual where he couldn't openly talk. I think about that. Like even nowadays you try to explain, I, you google that sort of thing you're like huh mm-hmm. it's like what does that mean you're kind of like you read the wikipedia article and your head slightly like starts to tilt until like your 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 head is literally sideways you're like oh i think i get it now <laughs> and i wonder maybe that like paul bartell was making a like we talk about all this cinema like we have like queer cinema these days like people like even back like in the 70s like john waters were making the first type of queer cinema but i wonder maybe like paul bartell made the first asexual film yeah, I I kind of feel the same way is that, you know, when when you read about Paul Bartel's personal life, one of the first things you'll always see is that he was openly gay in Hollywood back in the day. And this kind of formed his career or gave him some avenues that maybe um, wouldn't be uh, he ha- would have gotten if he you know was kind of closeted in some extent. But beyond that, you don't hear much more. You don't really hear about when he uh, came out with this decision. You don't hear about, you know, how it influenced other filmmakers and and that's really interesting because I don't think it's something we talked about on this podcast ever. But, you know, I think uh, I can say for both Rob and Zach, we don't care. You can be whatever you want, sexually charged anyway, whether you want to have sex with men, women, horses, bridges. No, no, no. We don't care. Okay, I, I don't I, care. Let's, let's, let's put it this care. way. Consenting adults, as long as you're in a, sure. a consenting a relationship with a fellow adult. If Childish you- Gambino wants to fuck a droid, I'm fine with that. But Zach might have a different opinion. But I think something we can <laughs> agree podcast, on, Zach. It, it, okay, yeah, kind of. Uh, but I think the thing we can agree on is that this should never define you. I, I, I am really against people whose sexuality defines them because you're more than just your sexuality. And that's part of the respect that I have for Paul Bartel, because even though he was openly gay in Hollywood, I don't think that his specific view of what turns him on ever shaped him as a person. Like we discussed with private parts, it was very much more of just sexuality as a whole to the human condition rather than to gay men or gay women, I, but anything that's, like that. But that's the point, though, is that, like, I feel, like, not saying if somebody's gay that, like, it's going to influence their work, but I think, but it feels like what 
he is in this, and the fact that again he wrote this and he plays the character. Think about the character. The character shares his same first name, so there's True. some level of identity sharing there. Mm-hmm. I wonder, just like it, like and that, and this also ties it back to private parts. Kind of like there's this blatant disgust for hypersexuality. Yes, and I find that interesting. Almost like that. Almost feel like. In the latter half of eating Raul, where he starts following Raul and he starts doing all these things with um, D- uh, Doris the Dominatrix. Oh my god! And my and a favorite, lot of- my favorite few scenes in a movie, almost ever. We'll get to it though. I don't want to. No, I'm not gonna give the way. Doris but, but some- the Dominatrix is amazing. <laughs> but some of the stuff that he has her do is almost to impede Raul's sexuality. Yes, and I yes, and I find that interesting in the movie with the pills that are given to him. Yeah, but that ties into the whole kind of like asexuality thing. Is that like Paul Bland, the character, mm. is a care in a movie that's full of hypersexuality, is so removed from all of it to the point where he walks into a sex shop and he's just kind of I don't want to say befuddled. But he is so, so out of his depth in that moment. Yeah, he's trying to act like a customer where the person behind the counter who is very much, you know, accustomed to this world is screaming at him. One of the greatest lines in this movie. I'm telling you, you're going to need lubricant for this vibrator. But I'm telling you, you're going to need a lubricant for this vibrator. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, though, is that, like, Paul Bland as a character is so unique in his just how he interacts with the characters in this world that are clearly fleshed out, and especially with his wife, partner, Mary. Mm-hmm. I just feel that there's something so profound here that we've never seen another movie before. And that even, like I say, how it connects to private parts and that like, yes. I wonder if Paul Bartel was just kind of like this, especially in the sixties and seventies. And then obviously this being the very beginning of the eighties, it's not fair to judge it by judge that decade. But I wonder if there's a part of him that was disgusted by sexuality. I, I'm i glad you bring this up because, you know, when I was rewatching this movie uh, for this recording, our discussion of private parts certainly came into the forefront of my mind where, you know, I talked about how that ending kind of is uh, Cheryl slash Cheryl realizing that she needs to be this kind of guardian of sexuality. And this movie, as you're saying, we have this asexual character that is just working to his own ends, trying to reflect sexuality or use it to benefit himself. And it is a very interesting dynamic. And I, I think I have to say for my personal uh, opinion is that this is kind of what I feel Paul Bartel was going for, that there, there is some kind of artistic creation of an abhorrence with overt sexuality that he puts into his movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think it's interesting too, that like he, he's, Annoyed. I don't think it's jealous of Raul. I think it's just the idea that like he's not jealous or angry at Raul because of what he's doing with Mary. It's the idea that just it's he's taking attention away from him. But I find it fascinating that his way of no, I want to say getting rid of Raul is to diminish his libido. Yes, and yes, that's one. That's one scheme amongst many that he tries with Doris. <laughs> I'm la- laughing about the goddamn blind nun. <laughs> but I just find that interesting, though. I just find that that no, that he's not right. he, he's not trying to change Mary. He's trying to 
empathize. I don't think that's a word, but neuter. I guess neuter is the right word. Sure. Neuter Raul. And I find yes. that part fascinating. It, it is fascinating because, you know, like we said, Mary and Paul in this movie, the Blands, they're almost business partners. While they're married, they're, they're in a relationship. They are more business partners than anything. And, and that's uh, what you described. Paul, Paul Bland, is playing this off like he is a good business partner. He, he believes in his partner and steadfastly accepts who they are, but he is against outer influences impacting them. And that's why he wants to change Raul more than he would ever want to change Mary. He doesn't want to change Mary. Mary is Mary to, in his eyes. He needs to change these degenerate forces that are reflecting on her and maybe causing problems for their restaurant, for their relationship, anything like that. It is, it is fantastically interesting. It's a dynamic that I don't think we've seen in a long time in movies. You know, It's, it's more of the – if somebody cheats on their significant other – it's more of just an anger response and just everybody needs to get hurt because of it. The man and the woman or the, the men and the men or the robot and the men or the bridge and the men, whatever. And, and I'm with you. It is, it is one of the reasons I love this movie, not because it's so funny, but it is wildly intriguing. And that, I think that's just what we said in Private Parts uh, episode. Paul Bartel is someone who can kind of hit on these topics in a way that we've never seen in filmmaking before, or in recently years, at least. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, there really was—I don't think there's anybody really doing this now in any sort of abstract way. Oh, not all, at all. This not is all, all under the surface. This is not anything at the forefront. You really have to be kind of analyzing this and digging through the layers. And like, that's the thing I find fascinating about him is I think he was like. Think about it. imagine trying again. It's difficult to explain this now in 2020, where everything again, God, uh, Paul Bartel would be losing his mind right now if he saw the hypersexuality that we currently live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never mind the, the early the, 80s. Like we mentioned, the opening dialogue of this movie is about how overstimulation will ruin people, and that's just literally the world we live in today is overstimulation. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the, the Watchmen quote it's like, whatever happened to the American dream? The American dream. You're looking at it. It's like that's kind of like that's 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 the opening of this movie. It's like oh, all this stuff is bad. It'll be the it's the cultural rot, and that's yes. the thing. Like I, like I I listened to the projection booths episode on this, which I've I've done in a while when it comes to uh, Cinematis title. But we've and we've I, talked about it. You've brought it up before. This projection booth for sure. Yeah, but it's been a while since I've delved into one of their episodes, or they've had an episode about a movie we're discussing, and they immediately go straight for oh, this is a critique on Reaganism. And it's like, oh my god! It's like everything has to be political with these people. Uh, when you it, say Reaganism, were they getting it like uh, hedon, the hedonism of the eighties? Okay, okay, not specifically like trickle down economics, no, more of no. just the, well, the, the total culture. That's the thing that people people who don't understand how the eighties worked is that anything that they don't like from the nineteen eighties, they automatically blame on Ronald Reagan. Apparently, Ronald Reagan walked into the office and the coke just started going; it started falling from the sky. That's <laughs> bedtime, that's what happened. Bedtime yes. for Bonzo. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And that's that's what they think. Anything that was bad they don't like about the eighties, it's Ronald Reagan's fault. I'm but actually I'm actually a little embarrassed that I just made that reference. I don't think anybody. Did anybody listen to us know that Ronald Reagan started a movie with a monkey called Bedtime for Bonzo? Are we Rob, dating ourselves? You're dating yourself, Rob. Are you we dating? Our, we're in our 20s, but are what, we dating what, our useless Why knowledge? are you saying our, Rob? Why do you keep saying our? You're we're the one in who this made together, it. Zach. The goddamn swingers. <laughs> you're my Mary, Rob. You're my Mary and I'm Paul. 
Oh, uh, Raul's going to come and seduce you with marijuana. Perfect. No, uh, okay. um, yes, uh, keep going. But, I hear but, what you're saying. But that's the thing, though, is that like you look up modern day criticism about this film, and automatically it's oh, Paul Bartel was a genius for his uh, criticism of 1980s Reaganism hedonism okay and i don't think that's the case i think from looking at both private parts in in this and even to an extent death race 2000 is that there's almost like a and it's weird to draw these parallels but like a this is gonna sound really weird maybe maybe i'm not explaining (laughs) it properly but like there's almost like that alex jones level like conservative counterculture in paul bartell's film from what we've watched so far like this idea yes. of like like a conservative counterculture almost like oh like being the person that abstains from all this makes you the weirdo and that shouldn't be sh- it's like no you're not the weird one for being normal they're the ones being weird for being so out there mm-hmm. now i find that like that's what this is cuz this was before the the 1980s conservative revolution that would hit the country yeah i yep. think that's what it was you do it's kind of like almost in a way Paul Bartel's filmography fits in better now than it did during its initial heyday of like this. Like obviously, I can't speak for Lust, Lust in the Dust, and uh, oh god, what's the other movie? Um, Class Struggle. Class Struggle. struggle. Yeah, yeah. We are doing this chronologically. We're taking it in stride with Paul Bartel's career, and I absolutely agree with you. I I think you know we talked about it last week with Death Race 2000. Was that movie ahead of its time? And we had maybe more of a debate because uh, we thought yay and nay in certain scenarios. But when I watch things like Eating Raul, like Private Parts with the sexuality aspect, I absolutely agree. This this was kind of you know unheard of for the early 80s, Eating Raul, and what they were going for with the main characters. And I got nothing but respect for that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the profoundness here. I think a lot of people just automatically go for the low-hanging fruit of 1980s hedonism, and they kind of miss out on the fact that, like, the sexual revolution was the 60s and 70s. Yes, the 80s had had its own level of hedonism, but that's where it all stemmed from, especially if you're Paul Bartel and you're, like, in New York and Hollywood – where you had you had the sexual rev- revolution dialed up to eleven, and if you weren't into that sort of thing, if you were a non-sexual creature, you would be very turned off and very alienated by that. Oh, absolutely. It's 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 kind of mind blowing, you know. As as you're saying this to me, and um, you know, because we've we've only talked about off mic uh, eating Raul a little bit and how funny we thought it was and how clever we thought it was, but th- this is kind of the the layer of why we needed to talk about Paul Bartel. I think Eating Raul was the catalyst for this entire series because once we gave critical thought to this movie, both of us were very much blown away by what it was going for. And just as you described, I'm in total agreement with you. Yeah, because I think there's almost like when it comes to Paul Bland for like the, the last third of the movie is that there's almost like, again, going back to like uh, Mary and Raul's affair, is that he's almost just like, he becomes fixated on it, mm-hmm. but, but uh, it's, it's so weird because like, he's, it's not like he's a jealous lover. Cause he never wants to confront Raul. That's the thing. He never wants to directly confront him. He finds all these, like he does. I, I think in a way, like if he was to confront Raul, he'd be sticking a foot into the world. Him and Mary are now like the, 
I keep saying hedonism, but I guess that's I guess that is the best way. To no, you're it. you're absolutely right because the movie actually takes that what you think might happen at least in today's day and age where the man in the relationship if he thinks the woman's cheating he's going to go out and try and put that wrench in it and figure it out. We get the opposite where Paul Bartel is just following Raul to get a sense of what's going on, and then we get the scenes where supposedly Raul is the one trying to kill Paul Bartel with the car accident and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It, it almost switches it up from what we know now as a society. Absolutely. When we have, you know, we have shows like Cheaters and we have parodies of Cheaters to, to Day's End where it's like we're going to catch him in the act and we're going to, oh, isn't your face red on camera, that type of thing. This is almost the complete opposite where Paul Bartel is just solely collecting information so he can keep his business and his goal, him and Mary's goal of a restaurant going. But then the person he's following is the one that starts to act. It's it's unreal. Yeah. I think part of that, too, is like even when it comes to, um, like I said, his plans to get Raul away from Mary is that he never confronts him directly, but he uses yeah. Doris as a proxy, somebody who is in that world, but also almost does it more as, I don't want to say an act, but it's like she's she's probably outside of Paul and Mary the most normal character that like she's almost yes. she she's i don't want to say she's the most similar to paul i have anybody in the movies because in the movie because obviously mary is but she's somebody that's using the hedonism to mm. her financial gain like she, she realized ex- she accepts the sexual degeneracy of society and is trying to profit from it yes and and that's made clear in multiple scenes throughout the movie probably the biggest laugh this movie gets out of me is when Paul and Mary are visiting Doris the dominatrix to ask her about her sexual escapades and her her sexual business. Ex- escapades is not the right word. Her sexual business as a dominatrix. And we get the great setup where there Paul and Mary are sitting at a this a dining room table and they're asking Doris questions while her child, her young child is in a booster seat next to it. And she's, like, cooking breakfast for her. She's feeding the child. She's working with it. And I don't know if I've ever laughed harder in my life. This is a this is a big statement for Rob to say. But I swear, every time I watch this movie, from the 1st to the, the 15th for this recording, we get a shot where Doris is like, oh, yeah, you know, people want to do blah, blah, blah. They want to do this, that, the other thing. And, you know, some of them even want golden showers. And Mary goes, what's a golden shower? And it cuts to the fucking close-up of the baby laughing. That's amazing. That that's that's taking all of the seriousness of what they're trying to do. Paul and Mary killing people for money, sexual degenerates for money. Doris using sexual degeneracy for um, her financial gain. It cuts to a one shot of a toddler laughing about golden showers. That, that's this movie in a nutshell, that it doesn't take itself too seriously, and everything we do sexually is just rooted in our childhood and, and our, maybe not our childhood, but in our, our immaturity. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's the point. I think this is not a critique of 1980s hedonism. We see a baby giggling. Somebody says the word golden shower. Which everybody knows is when somebody else is peeing on you. Thank you, in case Rob. You didn't thank, know. thank you, Rob. Just in case it somebody cuts to made a this baby hard. giggling. It cuts to Just, a baby with fucking mushy peas in its mouth giggling. That that's 
like you said, Zach, this is profound. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know what a golden shower is, and you made it this far into your life without having hey, this sort of gonna, information. We're going to get the Rob, basket job later. Rob, don't worry. Rob, Rob, Rob will cross it off the list for you. But that's why I mean, though. I think this is more, like, it's not... It's it's more of a condemnation of sexuality mm-hmm. in 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 a post nineteen fifties America than it is anything else. You're you're absolutely right. Like we said, Paul and Mary they sleep in separate beds. And if you ever think of you know, oh, what's the ideal family structure from the nineteen fifties? Right after World War II, it was very much you know that the man and woman were separate. They had their own beds. They were just kisses on the cheek, light kisses on the lips. You know. The woman had her roles. The man had her roles. They were very separate. And this is almost, not almost, it is, like you said, juxtaposing those ideals with sexual degenerate ideals. Whether or not you think it's degenerate to be open with your sexuality, that's how this movie is purveying it. And that's the clash we get. That's what makes this comedy. That's what makes this motivation. Yeah. But I I think that's that's kind of the packaging for it, though. Because if you look by the end of the film... Have have Paul and Mary had character arcs? Not at all. That, Mary, that, Mary, a little bit because she's smoked pot. Paul is still the same he was at the beginning. He doesn't like this wine. He likes his Chateau Lafitte, and he wants the restaurant. And Mary almost has that. I'm glad you bring this up because there was something I did want to talk about. Mary in this movie, the wife of Paul, she has that dip. She is very much set in her ways at the beginning of the movie. She wants this restaurant. She loves Paul. She doesn't like the sexual degenerate. She hates those goddamn swingers. At the end of the movie, she's in the same light. She did what she had to do with Paul to get this restaurant. But there's the dip in the middle of the movie where Mary has the affair with Raul. She lets him, you know, introduce her to drugs. She lets him have sex with her while she's at work. You know, it's impeding her ability. And... This this is a, a really great arc because I love the fact that she starts and ends at the same place, but in the middle has this depression into a different lifestyle. And I think this is a really great character arc. Even though you might start and end in the same place, you kind of, you know, for a cliche term, you need to see the darkest before you can see the light. And this movie, upon my multiple rewatchings, it really strikes me as to something uh, that an author I love writes a lot about. His name is Haruki Murakami. Have you ever read any Haruki Murakami books, Zach? The Japanese author? I think Zach said no. Not recently. (laughs) This is why I love Zach. He gives me answers like that. Not recently. (laughs) But one of the first books I ever read, and probably his most famous work from Haruki Murakami is a book called The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. And I will give you all in the audience, if you know Japanese literature, Rob does not speak Japanese. He's reading translations. And Haruki Murakami has a very you know specific person he works with with translations. But that is the point of this book. The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle follows a husband. And at the start of the book, his wife goes missing. And the whole kind of story is about how he needs to find his wife And it's about the women he meets along the way. And at the end of the book, he finds his wife in this almost kind of sub-dimensional space. And there's a great monologue that I don't have memorized, which one day I need to have memorized, where he finds his wife 
and his wife basically says, and and this is this is the author. This is not me. I know this is kind of problematic in this day and age, but the theme of this book is when he finds his wife in this sub-dimensional space, which is totally pitch black. The the main character can't see his wife. He's just hearing her voice. She says something like, when a woman gets married, they make a promise. But in the back of their mind, there is something that is constantly eating at them that that promise was the wrong promise to make. And there is the demon of sexuality that resides within every woman that is tied to a man that makes them think, what if there is something else? What if there is something better? And if you read more of Murakami's work, he harps on this a lot with the idea of um, sexual degeneracy, with women being demoralized by sexual acts. That's a big theme in a lot of his works. But this movie, when I watch Mary as a character go through that dip where she has the affair with Raul, where she starts to smoke you know, joints with Raul, when she has sex with him at her work, which is taking away from her duties, and it's making her shirk her responsibilities... I drew a huge connection to Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicle where there's always that disdain. And I want to abstractify that because in this movie, yes, it happens to Mary, the woman, not to Paul. And in the book, it happens to the woman, not the man. But I think this is something that Paul Bartel is getting at in a general sense or in a more grand sense is that people themselves when they make a promise, when they form a business relationship, as we talked about with our two characters, there's always some sense of doubt behind that. What if I made the wrong decision? And hell, we've all felt that. Me, Zach, the audience, when you make a choice with a, with a woman, with a man, with a droid, with a bridge, you always think, maybe I didn't make the right choice. Maybe I'm relegating myself to something that is not best for me in the long run. But you're never going to know until that long run plays out. And that's part of the fascination I have with this movie is because it doesn't matter that it's Mary and not Paul that has this affair. The whole thing gets at if I am steadfastly, firmly in my religion, I have beliefs that I'm going to stick to my whole life. When you break from them or if you don't break from them, you always have that bug in the back of your mind saying, is this the right thing? And that's what this movie gets at me on a thematic level, where Mary has her low point, but realizes what she has with Paul is better than anything she has with Raul. And Paul is kind of the one that always sticks to his guns and realizes that what he has is correct. And that, that I think, is the beauty of this movie, is that even though our characters go through trial and tr- trials and tribulations, they find that that business partnership, what they've believed in for many years— is the thing to stick to. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. You know, you could you could be married to someone for 50 years and then get a divorce. That could be the right thing for you. But this movie is steadfastly saying, you know, it takes challenges. It takes obstacles. It takes growth for you to realize those ideas. And end rant, Zach. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. No, you're entitled to one after every yeah. once in a while. You should. Every, you, Zach, and everybody in the audience, you should definitely read uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicle. That's a fantastic book. Uh, there's about 30 pages with our main character interacting with a cat, which are more amazing than anything that's been written since, you know, 1985. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can agree with that for the most part. I, I think there's also a level of this, too. You can almost make an argument that it's the, the Garden of Eden. 
the fact that the woman gives into temptation of the sure. the, the forbidden fruit. Um, whereas in, in, in Paul Bartel rectifies that by her eventually rejecting it. I mean, they're trying to, uh, yep. Like yeah. I said, that, that great scene where she says, Paul, I need to tell you. And he goes, no, I know it's the past. It's forgotten. Paul, there's something I never told you. Raul and I, are... I know, no, I know. Oh no, Paul, you don't know because he, he, you see what happened is he forced me to smoke this drug and then he raped me. And then he told me that if I didn't continue to have relations with him, that he was going to tell you. I couldn't let anyone hurt you. And so we continued. He deserved everything he got. But that's all over now, okay? That, that's, that's a fantastic scene of reconciliation between two people that know they need each other. Or, or not need necessarily, but want each other and are going to thrive with each other. It's, it's, it's beautiful. This movie's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's neat. There's nothing quite like this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's nothing quite like eating Raul. And it's called eating Raul for a reason we haven't even begun to describe. <laughs> All right, Rob, so you want to delve into some of your favorite parts from this movie? Or do, you have, or do we have any other philosophical musings that we want? Um, I, I, I think the only other philosophical thing I really want to talk about, which is a part of this movie, is that um, in the scene we've described where um, Paul Bartel follows Raul for you know his reasons uh this is where he realizes that raul as the business partner of paul and mary they're killing people to steal their money and they're selling the corpses to raul raul is giving the human bodies to a dog food company this is something that really started to stand out to me on the last few viewings because the first times i saw this i was like oh you know, it's it's just crazy. What are you going to do with dead bodies? You're going to sell it to the king. And there's a good bit of this movie where they talk about the king, but you don't know that it's Doggy King food brand, you know? And I I kind of find it now more interesting in the fact that the people that Paul and Mary kill are being turned into food. And, you know, when I describe it, it might sound stupid because at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, they kill Raul and they feed him to somebody. They, you know, I, I think uh, I have the line written down. They say, it's so amazing what you can do with a cheap piece of meat if you know how to treat it. And mm -hmm. they're talking about the meat they got from Raul after they killed him because Raul wants to abscond with Mary and kill Paul, all that stuff. But I've kind of grown in these last few viewings the philosophical idea of turning bodies into food, that's a big part of this movie. Because when, when somebody dies, we as a species put a lot of weight onto that. Uh, and I'm sure everybody in the audience has dealt with this to some aspect or another. Whether it's someone you're close to that dies, whether it's someone you barely know that dies or you hear about a death, they kind of get treated with respect. And I've said on this podcast many times before, you're not special because you're dead. And just to complete my thought, because I don't want to be misheard, you're not special because you're alive. You're not special because you're dead. You're not special because you could be born or could be killed. Nobody's special. But this movie takes to a greater extent that dead bodies are just product. And, and I really like that idea. Maybe it's me personally and my own beliefs. But this movie takes that stance where saying, well, the people that it takes time for Paul Bartel, or I should say Paul Bland, 
to hit over the head with a frying pan to kill them, once that becomes second nature to him, you still have to dispose of those bodies. And whether it be an incinerator or a dog food brand, something has to be done with that meat. And I think a big part of this movie is in the sense that not only are these dead bodies being given to a dog food company, but we see a commercial for that dog food company. And it's kind of adds that layer of saying, hey, you know, we're, we're giving meat to this company, maybe indirectly, but we have to realize that when we see it. And I think that's the next philosophical level I want to talk about, uh, departed from sexuality, separated from sexuality, is that this movie gets at what is the fact of death? What does death mean? Death does not mean you're gone forever. Death just means you're used in a different way. Have you picked up on anything like that from this movie? Or am I, um, just because I've seen it, you know, 15,000 times now, uh, that I, I'm picking up on these types of things. But, but I, I think another theme of this movie is that death is not the end. Death is a transition. Remember that death is not the end, but only a transition. Uh, it, it is I, minor. I'll give, I'll give you that, Zach. It is minor. It's not... We talked a lot about the sexuality, you know, almost an hour about the sexuality of this movie. Death is a very minor concept, but it's been really sticking out to me recently. I don't know. I never viewed the film in that sort of lens. Like, the, the sexuality is obviously at the forefront, so it's really mm-hmm. hard to uh, put anything in front of that. I, I, yes, death plays a major role in this film. The fact that how they do kill everybody is very cartoony oh yes but i don't i hit them on the head with a frying pan it's great (laughs) yeah you couldn't ask for anything more looney tunes tex avery-esque yes but i don't know i didn't pick up on on death having a a a very poignant meaning to all this i did not pick up on that the way you did anyway i I think that that's what i'm kind of this is my new because you're right sexuality is right in the forefront you have to think about it Private parts, this, Paul Bartel with the research, it's just right there. But I've been kind of feeling more and more is that, you know, this movie deals with, you know, the Blands. They kill somebody, they take their money. And then they put the body down the incinerator. Or they give the body to Raul to sell to a dog food shop. That's a big part of this film. In, in I think if this movie was made today and it wanted to be satirical or comedic in the way that this movie is, people would get killed. And you would never hear about their bodies again. But this movie specifically, explicitly deals with what happens to those dead bodies. And not just in the fact that Raul is selling them to the king to make money for dog food. We get the great lines where, you know, uh, the first person they kill, Paul, Paul Bartel, when they're sitting down in the kitchen around that dead body, Paul Bartel says something like, what are we going to do with this man? And Mary goes back and says, he was a man, but now he's just a bag of garbage. Mary, I just killed a man. He was a man, honey. Now he's just a bag of garbage. And, and I think subtly, there's a lot going on about, you know, what, what does death mean? What does the body inhabit or what is the body, the space that the body takes up after its death? What does that mean? And like I said, I think this movie plays on the fact that death is not the end, but simply a transition. Because the people that are living still have to deal with it. And we've we've talked about it before. You know, funerals. Uh, this is something we don't like to talk about a lot in 
this podcast or real life or movies or media. But, you know, just because someone's died, that's not the end of it. You have to deal with a lot more stuff. And I think this movie kind of on a secondary level is getting at that idea hardcore. Hmm. Yeah, I I never viewed it that way. I, not because not because I disagree with it though, but just I never looked at it under that sort of lens. Sure. Okay. Even at, even at the beginning, when they think that swinger that breaks in their apartment has died, you know, Mary calls the call, she calls nine one one, and she has the great line where she's like, "Officer, who do I who do I talk to to report a murder?" Off screen, we hear Paul Bartel go, "Not a murder, an accidental death." Sorry, officer, an accidental death. And then Paul Barkels goes, no, he's alive. Oh, I'm sorry, officer. I think you have the wrong number and hangs up the phone. <laughs> and it's very comical. I laugh so hard because anytime, j- just for you know, sake of completionism, anytime you call somebody and you tell them they have the wrong number, comedy fucking gold. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, hello, officer. Is this the police? Yes. Uh, who do I speak to to report a murder? Not a murder. An accidental death. Uh, officer, I'm sorry. An accidental death. Uh, guess what? Uh, no, I think you have the wrong number. But in the movie, in the context of them killing people, whether they're sexual degenerates or not, that gets at the idea of people have a certain reaction to death. Whether or not we know for certain that the person is dead, we react a certain way. And... You know, it, it, it's something I've seen in my life before. Uh, it's no secret, I think, on this podcast. Rob has smoked some weed in the past. And I will never forget, there was one time I was in a room full of people. We were smoking marijuana, and somebody took a few hits. And then out of nowhere, they just hit the fucking floor. Like, I'm not kidding you. They went from standing position to just literally passing out, falling on the floor. And in the long run, it turns out they had a really bad reaction to marijuana. It hit them in a, in a bad way. They passed out. They lost consciousness, all that stuff. But in that moment, we were losing our minds, everybody else in that room. We didn't know if they were dead or they were alive. We didn't know how to react to that. And we could only assume the worst. And I think this movie is getting at that exact idea that death or close to death is almost so similar that people have to deal with it in specific ways that nobody teaches you how to. It even goes to the end of this movie when Paul Bartell throws the um, the bug zapper or the whatever it is uh, into the hot tub and it kills like 12 people at once. That's something that they have to deal with. And they deal with it in a very sophisticated scientific manner where they sell all their fucking cars, you know, to make money. <laughs> but but that that like death is a secondary theme of this movie. I've started to feel. Have you, I, ever, have you ever been smoking weed in a room and somebody hits the floor, Zach? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> no, Rob. It hasn't happened. At least as of late. To, so for completion, uh, that's actually happened to me twice. The second time was a lot less scary uh, because you I knew prepared. it could happen. I was prepared. But that first time, holy shit, in my undergrad, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to jail for involuntary manslaughter. <laughs> no, but all that beside the fact, I think that personal experiences – uh, give me this ability to talk about this movie, but I think for somebody who has not had this, those experiences, like you, Zach, you can see where I'm coming from, right? I can see where you're coming from, but I'm not. I, I, 
I never, I don't know if that was his intent though. I, I think that yeah, is, that's it's a the, major, yeah. it's a major component. Again, death, obviously being a component of the film, but I, but it's just not, it's hard for me to get a read on it. The film that is in that sort of way, because death is not given anywhere near as much focus as the sexual hedonism is. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And so and no, I don't another bummer with you. is that, you know, I, I hate the fact that we got to bust out the stupid fucking Ouija board. I wish we, I could, <laughs> I wish I could just email Paul Bartel and be like, listen, we love you. We'll, we'll do something for you to get you on this podcast and answer these questions, but we can't. And it sucks. We need to contact the clairvoyant. Uh, yeah. I mean, remember from last week, I think it was last week, uh, seance modities. With our Ouija board at the restaurant. We need to do that over and over. And um, until that actually happens, you know, we don't have these answers. But at the same time, I'm I'm happy that we get to discuss these movies in these ways because I think it's some of the most philosophical discussions we've had about movies ever. Where you know we talk about things like Mortal Engines and we just shit on it for two hours. Where here it's like okay, there's something tangible that we can discuss for a length of time. It's beautiful. It's nice, it's nice to talk about an actual filmmaker on cinema. He, suppo- yeah, as a, what a as novel concept. <laughs> as opposed to the normal crap we delve through. What a novel concept. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that, A, I've never given it that sort of focus okay. before. And B, I don't think it's if, it's, if that layer is there intentionally, I don't think it's meant to be as sifted through mm-hmm. and scrutinized as to your, what you're doing. Not saying it, that what you're doing is wrong. It's just, I don't think that was the, that's the story he's trying to tell. Yeah, yeah, implicitly. You're, you're, you're saying something like the, the death aspect is more of a garnish rather than the meat to be dissected. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. And I, I get you there. And of course, you know, I've, it's a, almost a hallmark of this podcast that if, if you show me something I really like, I'm going to dissect it to death and give it all my own meanings and things like that. But, um, but I think it's interesting, you know, for the Paul Bartel series in particular, this is why we're talking about these movies, because they are so deep and layered, and and we can get these type of conversations out of them. Yeah. All right, I think that was the last philosophical thing I had to uh, point out, and so while I do want to go through a lot of scenes that I loved, I have to start with, as I said earlier, probably the greatest comedic shot in film history. Doris the dominatrix dresses up as a nun and she wears a sign around her neck that says the word blind on it. We have a blind nun with a sign that says blind. It's amazing. I, oh my God, Zach, this, this sequence might be the greatest thing because Doris the dominatrix is not only a blind nun, she is also an immigration worker and then a VD nurse for Raul. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. I don't, I don't think I picked it up the first time I saw this, but on rewatch, this is the funniest part of the whole goddamn movie that Paul Bartel is like, we need to deal with this Raul. Can you help me with your acting abilities? And we get three shots, three different scenes of Doris, the dominatrix in different costumes trying to deal with Raul. And she's like, I'm a blind nun. Oh, I see your future. It's not good. The next one. Uh, I'm an immigration worker. I need to see your green card, all that stuff. And then the VD nurse where it's like, do you have this this venereal disease? And he's like, I don't think so. And he's like, well, it's, it, uh, you know, reminisces or it uh, gives itself up with no symptoms and that type of stuff. Oh, my God. This is I haven't said it in a long time, but funny things make people laugh. I think that's everything we can agree with. Something that's funny makes people laugh. 
something that is profoundly funny, you don't laugh at. And I might say you, but I know from my experiences, when I watch things and I find something funny, I'll chuckle. I'll give a giggle. Hell, maybe I'll do a hard, a wholehearted belly laugh because it's so great. But if something is truly funny, profoundly funny, I will just sit there in awe. And that is what I do for the scene with Doris the Dominatrix dressing up in different costumes confronting Raul. I just sit there in awe, and I can't laugh. I can't smile. I, my mouth is agape, and I just think to myself, this is comedy. And of course, that's subjective. That's my opinion. But I have to throw it over to Zach. Is, how do you think about this scene, this weird part of the movie where Paul Bartel recruits a dominatrix with a kid to go off and impede Raul in some way? What are your thoughts? I thought it was entertaining. I, 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 I have to humbly disagree with that. It, it broke me. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's amusing, but I don't think it's... The funniest thing in cinematic <laughs> history. Are you telling me that when you saw the nun with the blind glasses, like the darked out glasses, with a sign around her neck that says BLIND in all capitals, you didn't you, you didn't take a pause and lose your mind? You didn't you didn't lose your mind for just a moment? I did not, Rob. I did not. That's that's geez. I think it's amusing. I think it's a funny guy. This is why Joker. Zach doesn't like revolver either. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Zach doesn't like a lot of things. We are we are different people, which is why we do this podcast. But it has to come up that like this is this is profoundly comedic. This is beyond anything in the sketch comedy fort month, which I know I use that same phrase, profoundly comedic. This is on a whole nother level. This makes me understand what comedy can be and how I haven't seen comedy to its fullest. That I'm watching this movie from 1982. And they're doing something that is, you know, blowing my mind in this way. It's amazing. Doris the fucking dominatrix is the shit. <laughs> no, she's a cool character. I can't deny that, though. And she has some pretty clever gags. But I, I, I do not think it's to okay. the level that okay. you, you're okay. seeing it as. But, but at the Whoa. same time, though, I do Beat not me, want to Doris. take that away from you. Beat me, Doris. Work me. Make me write bad checks. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, yeah, I had to bring that up because I I love that. That's where this movie really solidifies as a comedy to me that it blows my mind with what it can do and, you know, right as, as kind of the scrubbers of these scenes, we have Paul Bartel hanging on to the top of Raul's van and just driving around the city and it's all kind of comedy gags, uh insightful idyllic gags. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely, Zach. <laughs> Those scenes tickled your fancy, Rob. Um, I have to bring up because I think Zach would yell at me if I didn't. When Paul Bartel goes into the sex shop, when he meets the sex shop worker, who, as I said, has the great line, "I'm telling you, you're gonna need lubricant for this vibrator." And if we, if I didn't put it in earlier, I'll put it in now. This whole clip. What do you want? Hey, <clears throat> I'd like a vibrator, please. A pair of handcuffs. Hey, get him out of here. He's not 18. Hey, man, come on, I'm 18. Get him out of here. Oh, yeah. uh, come on, give me the magazine Let's bag. Let's go out of the store, kid. Shit. Ring. And a what? Cock ring. Oh, cock ring. What size? Hey, get the latest issue of Nuns and Nazis. Tuesday. What size? Uh, medium, I suppose. Is it for you? 
medium will be fine. Sure. Okay, your vibrator start at 1095 and go up. We got the salami, the man of war, and alien. Just give me the cheapest one. Wait a minute, there's nothing cheap about my store. You mean inexpensive, don't you? Isn't that what you meant? Yes. That's what I thought you meant. You want a cheap pair of handcuffs, too? Yes. All right, you're gonna need some lubricant for this vibrator. We've got KY and Lay Orgy Gel. Hey, you taste it, you're gonna buy it, all right? The Lay Orgy Gel comes in lemon, mint, cherry, or trail mix. Trail mix? That's making a joke. Just these three items will be fine. You know, you're probably gonna need some uh, Stay Hard Roll-On. No, thanks. Some Titty Lube? No. China Shrink Cream? No. Benoit Dancing Egg? Just these three items will be fine. Okay, Hot Rod, it comes to $19.50. But I'm telling you, you're gonna need a lubricant for this vibrator. Unless your date's inflatable. Ha! For your information, I am buying this to use as a novelty cocktail stirrer. Sure! This is such a great juxtaposition of, like we said, Paul Bland, the conservative, religious, stick-to-his-guns type of person versus someone who is just open to this sexuality. The, the the sex worker, he's not gay, he's not straight, he doesn't have any sexual orientation, he just works in this universe, and he's accustomed to it. And this is hilarious for all of the scenes where Paul Bartell is trying to buy sex toys from him, but I needed to point out that when Paul Bartell says he needs a vibrator, the one he's going to need lubricant for, we get three sizes of vibrator from our sex shop worker. Zach, do you remember or did you write down the three sizes of vibrators? I did not, Rob. How do you not write down sizes? Okay, once again, Zach and I are different people. When we hear sizes of vibrators, Rob writes them down, Zach doesn't. It's okay to each his own. But here we go. The three sizes that we have, I'm assuming in ascending order. So as we list them, they're going to get bigger. The first one is salami. Which is, you know, salami, but fair. It's got some girth to it. Maybe that what we all picture when we think of a vibrator. Okay. The second size is man o war. Like the jellyfish. What the fuck? I want to take a pause here and ask you, Zach, what the fuck does that mean? Is this a vibrator the size of a jellyfish? Does man o war have any other connotation to you other than a jellyfish? Maybe it stings. Oh, <laughs> but he does say that it's sizes. Okay, Zach has no response to that one. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep digging this hole or, you know, uh, winning the winning the audience over. We got salami. We got man of war. And the final size, he says, is alien. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> An alien sized vibrator. Because here's the thing. This is why this works so well. You know, they could have went. Salami, man of war, dragon, right? Because if you think dragon, oh, it's a big lizard. It's gonna have a huge fucking dick. It's gonna be, it's gonna break my vagina if I try and use it, you know? But they go alien. Nobody knows what an alien vibrator would look like. Is it huge? Is it long? Does it got girth? Does it got length? Does it have bumps on it? Does it have two prongs? We don't know. I don't know. Do you know, Zach? I'm going to say not, right Rob. now, Zach does not know. <laughs> this is Indeed, he does not. Salami, Man of War, and Alien are our three sizes of vibrators. I could, go, I could talk about this for a whole other episode, Zach. 
but I'm gonna save it for our snacks. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Oh God! Like I said, the the sex worker scene is amazing. I love that the sex worker is so ingrained in his world, his job. While Paul Bar- Paul Bartel, Paul Bland is new to it, it's a great juxtaposition. Absolutely. I think the next thing I want to bring up, because um, like I said, my notes are almost all just quotes of things, and I think that's where I'm going to go next. Um, I I really like. And this gets at more of Paul Bartel's directing, because he is the director of this movie and he stars in it. We get a great shot right at the beginning where Paul and Mary go back to their apartment in the elevator. They run into the swingers. They start to say, like, oh, the damn swingers, they're ruining this neighborhood, blah, 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 blah. When they get into their apartment, they're expecting the guy who's selling them the restaurant. And that's kind of the beginning of the movie where Mary's like, I got to get dinner on. Paul Bartel is like, I'm going to keep him busy. You know, we'll smooth talk him. We got to get this restaurant. We got to be able to uh, be able to pay for this restaurant and, and be able to own it, all that stuff. And when the, there's a knock on the door and they think it's the guy from the real estate agency, which I, I imagine the guy selling the restaurant, they answer the door and it's not him. It's a drunk swinger. The drunk swinger comes in and he's like, oh, I want to I want to fuck her. I want to fuck you like I'm going to fuck everybody because I'm a sexual degenerate. And Paul Bartel gets physical with him, and I think he knees him in the groin or the stomach, or he punches him in the stomach, and the swinger is like, I'm going to throw up. And the swinger runs into their bathroom. Paul Bartel follows him, because it's a stranger in his house, and the swinger kind of puts his hand out at the bathroom door, and he pushes Paul Bartel away, and he says, man, some things are private. And this really stood out to me on repeat viewings because after this scene happens, there's an entire kind of setup where they think the swinger's dead. He's not dead. They, they call the cops, which is the line I mentioned earlier. How to report a murder, not a murder, an accidental death, blah, blah, blah. The entirety of the swinger's death, in quotations, in the bathroom is shot from outside the bathroom. And you know what shot I'm talking about, right, Zach? Like the camera's set up at the start mm-hmm. of the hallway, and we only see what's going on through a little crack in the door of the bathroom that's ajar. And I wanted to bring this up because on multiple viewings, this is kind of why I think Paul Bartel is a masterful director. Because he has somebody in the film say the line as they're going into the bathroom, some things are private. And then... Everything that takes place in the room where things are private is from a distance, from a crack through the door. And I take this as masterful artistic direction that Paul Bartel had a character say something. They can't go into that room because some things are private. So every shot we get of that room is from the exterior. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I could see that. I, I... Yeah, I can I, get behind I, that. I, I think that the audience and Rob can sense Zach's hesitance talking about this. I'm not denying this is certainly Rob projecting some stuff onto the filmmaker. But it's so notable that, you know, a lot of this movie is, I would say, classically shot in the sense of, you know, we have camera angles and, and you know, uh, the 180-degree rule, all that stuff, the way we'd expect it. But it's this one kind of standout that we get where everything happening in this room is shot from outside the room at a distance. And just the fact that we get that line, some things are private, the bathroom is private, 
going along with the conservatism of the Blands, this all kind of adds up to me. I, I think this is this is artistic to the nth degree. Sure, I think I can get behind that. I can get that behind that a little bit more than the death thing. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can get behind that. No, yeah, I think you made a logical argument there. Like again, we will never know for certain, though. But considering what evidence you put forth, you got to keep bringing that up. We can't talk to Paul Bartel. It makes me sad every day. I wake up. I wake up sweating in the middle of the night. Because I'm thinking about how Paul Bartel is dead and about how Dom Hall Gleason is the spy. <laughs> Every night I wake up with a panic attack. Like I have an anxiety attack in my sleep for those two things. <laughs> uh. So, yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I think this adds to something I said in the private parts episode is that, you know, Paul Bartel is a masterful director. He understands camera angles, he understands his actors. And uh, like we said then and in Death Race 2000, it's a bummer that he never got the recognition he deserves, and he's relegated to the, um, you know, the most influential filmmaker we've never heard of. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a few other lines I have to bring up. The first murder that happens, we get this great close-up shot where there's a dead body laying on the kitchen floor. Mary and Paul are sitting, you know, kind of right next to each other, splayed out on the linoleum. And uh, Mary goes, you killed him! And Paul Bartell says, oh, shit, that's all I need. He's dead. He's really dead. Oh, shit, that's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like kind of satire at the finest, you know, because these characters don't realize the gravity of the death of a human being. They're just seeing it as a minor inconvenience. <laughs> uh, next thing. Um, I mentioned it, mentioned it to Zach off mic, but I had to bring it up now that we've gotten to it. Um, there's a um, Mary, of course, in this movie. She is a nutritionist. She works at a hospital feeding patients, you know, making sure they get their meals, all that stuff. There's another nurse that works with her whose name is Sheila. And I didn't write the actress's name down, but Sheila, the, um, the shorter woman with the curly hair that kind of covers for Mary when she's having sex with Raul in that scene, she is in... Paul Bartel's short film, The Naughty Nurse. And she has the role where at the very beginning of The Naughty Nurse, she is talking to the main character going, I think I left scissors in that patient after we sewed him up. And it's kind of more of that comedic bit. But Paul Bartel, once again, is pulling on some actors and actresses that he knows about, for sure. The next thing I have probably could go with snacks, but I think it's so distinct I needed to ask you about it, Zach. We get the scene where Paul Bartel, or I should say Paul Bland, meets with the wine buyer. He's trying to sell some of his Chateau Lafitte to the wine buyer to make money for their restaurant. And it turns out that while they're at lunch or dinner or whatever, um, the wine buyer excuses himself and never comes back. And it turns out that he stole the wine. But in the shot that we get when Paul Bartel is sitting alone at this table with two placings in front of him, you know, half-eaten or finished plates— the waiter comes up, and you can tell this, you can get the sense that the waiter has been waiting there for a while. And the waiter says to Paul Bartel, Are you done? Like, can I take your plates? And Paul Bartel, very kind of, you know, exhaustedly or just, you know, uh, realizing that he's lost the battle, that this guy's not coming back, he says, Yes, you can take my plates. And the waiter responds with, Good, I'll go bury it. <laughs> what the fuck does this mean? Are you through with this? Yeah. Good. I'll go bury it. 
What the fuck does this mean? Why would you bury any food or plates or like, yeah, I, I mean, in my research and something I've heard about, there's a Jewish tradition that if you have food that isn't kosher eaten off one of your plates, you need to bury the plate. But but there's no there's no like religious or Jewish traditions in this movie. When the waiter says, like, can I take your plate? Finally. And Paul Bartell goes, yeah, you can take it. He's not coming back. The waiter says, good, I'll go bury it. What the fuck does this mean, Zach? Do you have any idea? I did not, Rob. I don't even remember that moment. <laughs> I remember I remember the scene, but I don't remember that line of dialogue. So, yeah, the waiter says, good, like very sarcastically, good, I'll go bury it. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck are they getting at? <laughs> it, was, it shocked me. <laughs> yeah, that did not blip on my radar. Comment down below if you know what it means to bury, if you're a waitstaff person, I've never worked as a waiter. I don't think you have, Zach. Um, I've been in the food service industry, but it was the deli worker at a grocery store. I've never served people plates. I don't know. Maybe this is like a like the person been, has been at the table so long that you think they're dead, so they need to be buried. Like I, I don't know. I'm grasping at straws. This blows my mind. Another layer of this movie that blows my mind. <laughs> Let us know, uh, Barry, Emily, send us an email. Do you know what this means? Scott you'll bury e. a plate? <laughs> yeah, Scott E. <laughs> After, if, you're, if you're done under, trying to understand Dragon Blade, what does this mean? <laughs> yeah, I had to bring that up because I'm shocked. And, and, and like I said, it's so weird that I don't even think I want to incorporate the, this with snacks. I can't ask for our waiters to say this unless we know what it means, right? No. Yeah, exactly. Okay, another line I had to say. Uh, I won't give any context, but uh, I think it is a very fun line that we've talked about in our Thanksgiving, our first Thanksgiving episode. Uh, I don't mind paying cash for gash as long as it's class. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to touch that. Not touching that line. Um, I do want to bring up the fact that we get to see the Invisible Man himself from Amazon Women on the Moon, Ed Begley Jr., Shows up as the hippie client of Cruel Carla. And I, I love Ed Begley Jr. Just in general. So I, I, it was great to see him in this movie. Where he's playing the hippie and he's like, hey man, I'm trying to be cool. You think I'm a square? I'm going to rape you. And then Raul has to choke him to death. You know, that yes. type of thing. <laughs> great fun. Uh, there's a scene where Mary, ha- or Cruel Carla, I should say, has put out the ad. And they get somebody who is into sexually a nazi interrogation scene their fetish is being a nazi officer interrogating a woman sure you know to each his own droid bridge nazis whatever i love the fact that in their apartment when they have the nazi fetishist they have a nazi flag like a swastika flag on the wall very minimal but they also have a throw pillow with a swastika on it that's a whole different level Sure, you can, if you were doing this in real life, if you were trying to, you know, you know, do this, what Mary and Paul Bland are doing, capture sexual degenerates and, you know, prey on their fantasies, sure, you could get a Nazi flag. No problem. But a throw pillow? A throw pillow with a swastika on it? That's crazy. That's crazy to me. Is that crazy to you? You Do you think that you could find... I'm not talking about this day and age because you know, never, you're never finding that. Nobody gives a fuck. You're like Every time I bring up the fact that the swastika for literally hundreds of years 
was the Buddhism symbol of good luck before it was the fucking Nazi symbol, people still look at me weird. Today, you're never finding a throw pillow with a swastika on it, right? Well, the thing about that, it's weird that, like, nowadays you could get that custom made pretty easily, I would imagine. It's just a matter of, like, screen printing and putting, like, some, like, not, like, fluff in there to make a pillow. And knowing the right people, because I feel like if you go to a graphic designer and you go, hey, I want a swastika on a throw pillar, they're going to go, hey, you're canceled. Welcome to social media, motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah, but the thing that makes it so weird in this, though, is that where would you find something like that in the 1980s? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, I... That stood out to me. Hardcore. Like I said, I, I just want to read out the fact that, you know, people are stupid this day and age. The swastika, anybody ever sees it, they think it's a Nazi symbol. But like I said, for literally all of human history, like 1935 and earlier, the, the swastika is the Buddhism symbol for good luck. So, you know, fuck Hitler for ruining a symbol like that. But that's beside the point. That, that's Rob getting up on a soapbox saying people are stupid because they, they don't understand history. <laughs> uh, I have to mention, we get a great scene in the hospital um, where at the start of the scene, we hear a voiceover on the PA. Very much like Gremlins 2, where we talked about how the clamp building had all those great one-liners over the, the uh, communication system. We get one at the hospital here and says, I quote, Attention, all male nurses. Your dance is canceled for this evening. <laughs> I don't know. That made me laugh hardcore. It's, it's very like it's very like childish sexuality, gay joke stuff. But, you know, male nurses with dances. Oh, I, I loved it for sure. In the same scene, when Mary is shirking on her duties because she's smoking pot and having sex with Raul, when she gets back to her job, one of the other nurses says to her, you better get back on things. Those amputees get awfully mean if they don't get their grub. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it snappy because those amputees get awfully mean if they don't get their grub. I don't know. I don't know any amputees. I don't know if Zach knows any amputees, but I would imagine if you can't walk for yourself, you want your food on time, right? Is that I hope so. Am I, am I offensive, Zach? I guess that's the bigger question. <laughs> In general, yes. Perfect. Uh, oh, I have to say it once again. I'm telling you, you're going to need lubricant for this vibrator. Great line. Uh, I think the the last thing I want to mention is that when they go to the last line I want to mention is when they go to the swingers party, um, Paul and Mary, we get the great Don Steele, which I've already quoted. I'll do it again. I'm Howard Swine, your horny host that's hung with the most, though I hate to boast. I'm big as a post and warm as toast. Hi, swingers. I'm Howard Swine, your horny host that's hung with the most, though I hate to boast. I'm big as a post and warm as toast. In that same scene, Paul and Mary are just kind of walking around. You know, they're, they're like, we have to find people to kill, to make money from. They're being very kind of laid back in terms of the party. And we get someone come up to them. Someone who's very much into the party. Um, she's a she's a famous actress. I don't remember her name, but she's in like Ferris Bueller's Day Off as a secretary. You know, if you see her, you're gonna know who she is. And when she walks up to Paul and Mary at this swingers party, she has a fantastic fucking line that I'm I'm going to say to people at parties from here on out. She walks up to these this couple, Paul and Mary, when they're kind of being timid, they're laying back from the sexuality of this. And she says, do you have VD 
or are you just here as tourists? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking amazing. Why would you lay back at a sexual party unless you're tourists, just a voyeur, or you have a venereal disease? Do you have VD or are you just Taurus? I'm swearing to you and our audience right now, Zach, the next big party I go to, I don't care what function it's fucking for. I'm going to go up to somebody that's looking like they're laying back and I'm going to say this exact goddamn line to them because it's that fucking glorious. <laughs> do, you, do you have VD or are you just here as tourists? And of course, the scene goes on where Paul Bartel and Mary are like, well, we are more into Great Danes. And she goes, oh. <laughs> Oh, God. This is an amazingly funny movie. Everybody should watch this movie. <laughs> indeed, Rob, indeed. Oh, were there any scenes you wanted to highlight before we get into some of the bonus features that we watched? Uh, no, like I said, I think highlighting specific things from this kind of uh, detracts from the overall package. Sure, sure. Present company it, excluded, it, of course. It, Oh, well, yes, you know, Rob's always going to do that, no matter what. Um, Whether it be a fantastically funny movie or a fantastically boring movie like Blade Runner, check that out in a month, uh, I'm always going to do that. I'm always going to latch on to certain scenes. So with that being said, uh, Zach and I watched some bonus features, some behind the scenes, some interviews, some gag reels. And um, I wanted to make mention, I think I want to kick it off because one of the things that really stood out to me is um, we watched an interview between Paul Bartel, Mary Warnov, and somebody. I, I didn't pick up on who the interviewer was, but it was specifically about eating Raul. And sure, there's a lot we could talk about. I'm sure maybe Zach might have some overarching ideas with these behind the scenes and what it means for the movie. But I was kind of shocked that in this 1982 interview with Paul and Mary, they talk about Andy Warhol. It's, it's Warhol, actually. What did I say? Hull. It's Hull. As in Hulls. Which is, of course, uh, Mary Warrenov was one of Andy Warhol's girls, uh, muses. Paul Bartel came from that same kind of scene, that Warhol underground back in the day. But I don't think it's ever been said on this podcast. I don't even know if I've ever said it to Zach before. Andy Warhol is a plague on the artistic world. I hate Andy Warhol. I, I, I figured something like this was going to sure. come up. And, I, and hey, I lived in Pittsburgh for three and a half years. I've been to the Warhol Museum. I've complained about uh, every time I've been to the Warhol Museum, I've complained 100% of the time. Um, you know, I guess to put this in perspective, Warhol is a blight where Jackson Pollock is the greatest thing to ever happen to artwork. And we could do a whole episode about how the fact that if you ask anybody to draw a line, they're going to take a pen and they're going to put it to a piece of paper and they're going to draw a line. But if you ask Jackson Pollock to draw a line, he's the first person to ever say, why does my pen need to touch the paper to draw a line? That's beside the point. Uh, Jackson Pollock's amazing. Andy Warhol is a fucking lunatic. I did not expect to hear the greatest quote, the greatest summation about what I thought about Warhol from Mary Warrenov in this interview. And here it is. We're going to put the clip in, and I'm going to say it. It's going to be all over this episode because it's so fucking beautiful. Mary Warrenov says to this interviewer, Warhol tried to glorify the banal so much that he forgot to be entertaining. Yes, but Warhol glorified the banal so much that he, was not, he forgot to be entertaining. 
<laughs> this is amazing. I've been searching for years. I've been going to museums my whole life. You know, we talked about Hieronymus Bosch and the Garden of Earthly Delights. We've talked about Pollock now. I could talk to you for hours about, you know, Da Vinci, about Picasso, about um, uh, Monet, about the guy who did uh, Boogie Woogie Nights. You know, I have so many artworks. Uh, Dolly, we talked about before in my apartment. I wake up every morning looking at a Dolly print that I have of elephants reflecting water. I've been tripping my brains off on acid looking at Dolly paintings. I have never, ever been able to summarize my thoughts on Warhol more than this sentence. He tried to glorify the banal so much that he forgot to be entertaining. This is amazing. I'm so glad you had me watch these bonus features, Zach, because this transcends Paul Bartel, Eating Raul, and the series. I now know why I hate Andy Warhol. And it's this exact fact. He forgot to be entertaining. entertaining. <laughs> so I guess I have to throw it over to you just for my personal curiosity. What are your thoughts on Warhol? Are you a big art person, I guess, for our audience? I am not, Rob. I, I don't have an opinion on, on, on any of these people really specifically. So are you saying that your extent of knowledge on Warhol is Men in Black 3? where Bill Hader plays an alien as Warhol. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you're not, you're not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong. <laughs> I, I'm one of the people that actually likes men in black three, but that's a stupid scene. That's a really stupid scene where he's like, are you going to get me out of here? Agent K. I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. And Bill Hader's just being Bill Hader playing Andy Warhol. And it's just like, Oh God, get, get, get me out of here. Like, I, I remember that now, now that you bring it up. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Great. I'm so, like I said, uh, this podcast sometimes transcends what we discuss, and this is one of those moments. Uh, I'm going to keep this quote in the back of my head for the rest of eternity. Andy Warhol tried to glorify the banal so much that he forgot to be entertaining. <laughs> Beautiful. So another thing I wanted to discuss about the 1982 interview um, two things, actually. Uh, I have a quote written down that I don't remember what it came from or who Paul Bartel was referring to, but I laughed hysterically when Paul Bartel was discussing somebody he was working with. He says, and we'll put the clip in, but I think I got the quote pretty accurately. He had three years at RADA, or was it two? I think it was one. Maybe it was six months. No, he visited Rada. <laughs> is this is this Paul Bartel just being goofy? <laughs> because you can't you can't seriously say something like that, right? Where you go from three years to two years to one year to six months to visit, right? Um, and he also has three years at Rada. Or was it two? I think it was one. Perhaps it was six months. He visited Rada. Yes. Well, he knows where Rada is. I think so. <laughs> I think he's trying to be coy. Yes, good old Paul Bartel. But the last thing in this interview I wanted to point out is that uh, Paul Bartel does mention private parts, which we've discussed previously. And he says something I think we discussed in our episode, that the name was its bane. Because as we discussed private parts, uh, some newspapers wouldn't print that. They didn't want to print that. Some outlets wanted to change it to private party, things like that. And I love the fact that in this interview, 
Paul Bartel was faced by this, and he basically said, well, just call the movie Cox and Cunts. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul Bartel. Like, fuck it. Fuck the industry, you know. Your movie is its own thing. Name it whatever the hell you want. If it's not going to play well, make sure it doesn't play well to the maximum. <laughs> yeah, I can get behind that. I, I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to hear Paul Bartel um, talk in an interview kind of space because that's something I've, you know, only getting, I'm only getting used to with this research. But, um, you know, in this in 1982 interview, uh, I was kind of blown away by the fact that um, the interviewer at one point mentions Roger Corman. And you can see all of the joy drain off of Paul Bartel's face. And it, it was very interesting to see him in a candid way. Was there anything else with the with the bonus features we watched that you wanted to discuss? And, of course, the gag reel is hilarious. That's just funny as shit. You know, you got Don Steele going, I'm Howard Swine, your horny host that's hung with the most, and I have a little, I'll go, okay, I need another take. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Was there anything else that you wanted to point out with those bonus features? No, they kind of add to the film, but nothing that I think needs uh, explicit highlighting for this conversation. Sure, sure. I think before we get to our questions, the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, not only the fact that Paul and Mary Bland make an appearance in another film. We have to talk about good old Chopping Mall, Zach. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about the sequel to Eating Raul. So there was a sequel that was written by the same people, Paul Bartell and Richard Blackburn. It was called Bland Ambition fucking fantastic title and from all of the research that i've gathered i've i've put all of this into one synopsis this is what i've gathered the movie would be about it follows the blands operating their new restaurant they don't recognize the governor of california when he comes in and they don't allow him to jump the line so he sends a very overzealous health inspector to shut them down in response, the public convinces Paul and Mary, because they love the restaurant so much, to run against the governor in the upcoming race. And in that process, they adopt a young girl to improve their family image. Of course, this never happened. As far as my research has found that 10 days before the production began, uh, funding was withdrawn and we never got this sequel. But I, I just want to pose for a moment, Zach. One, what would we think about a sequel to this movie? And two, what would we think about a sequel where these two characters have an adopted daughter? Your thoughts. Um, in the projection booth episode where they interview Mary uh, Bornoff, they okay. she she's not too thrilled with it. I think she said that she she had a very limited role in it. She was not the she was not as prominent as a character as she is in Eating Raul, so she was never too thrilled about being involved with it. Interesting. Yeah, from what I apparently there was different drafts of this. Apparently, um, on the projection booth episode, two of the people had actually read one of the drafts of it, and they, they think it's entertaining, but not anywhere as good as this film. Okay. It's, okay. Yeah, that that was kind of what I found as well. Is that you know this never took off because it wasn't as exciting as. Uh, eating Raul. And mm -hmm. when Paul Bartel was trying to shop this sequel around, he had already had his next feature film debut 
uh, not for publication. I'm sorry, deb- not debut. His, ne- his next feature film, not for publication, which is uh, something I have watched. We'll talk about that more next week because in our chronological Paul debut, Paul Paul debut, Paul Bartels uh, cinematography, and I think that when he moved on from things, people weren't very interested in the Blands anymore. But we have to talk about there was somebody in 1986 who directed the little film called Shopping Mall that really loved Paul and Mary Bland. And I want to throw this over to you, Zach, because this is something I never would have found, I think, until you told me about it, that we get a reoccurrence of these characters, right? Yeah, in Shopping Mall, I was surprised that that this is another Turner Classic Movie Underground film. Whereas I was watching it, I've always wanted to see Chopping Mall, so I thought it was great that it was on TV. Is and this? I, I I hate to cut you off, but is this is this a is this a movie you enjoy? Because I've never seen all of Chopping Mall. I think you have. Is this is this something worth watching? No, in the long not, run. No, no. There's, okay. there's two. There's okay. only two good parts of it. Technically, it's one, no. It's, it's no elves. Ah, uh, nothing's ever going to be elves. True. Um. <laughs> No, it has there's, one... there's no there's no forty five minute tape on the door sequence. Is what you're telling me? <laughs> maybe, maybe something similar to that, but not not as not as unique as elves. Sure, I watched the um the first five minutes, like Zach told me, where Paul and Mary Bland make an appearance. Paul Bartel and Mary Warnov, the same actors portraying the same roles. They talk about their restaurant, and it's 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 gleeful. I was. Giddy with delight while watching this. Yeah, it's uh, it's really neat seeing them, especially when you're not expecting them. I'm kind of watching Chopping Mall because I've been hearing about it for so many years. Mm-hmm. And when it begins with them, you're like, oh wow, this is neat. Not not that you're expecting them to be prominent characters throughout the entire film. Yeah, I don't it's, I don't think there's any cameo movie you would ever think the Blands would be a part of. You know that that's always unexpected. <laughs> exactly. So I was kind of taken aback by that, taking aback by that, but in the best way possible. And uh, no, and then like there's technically one good moment that's stretched into two funny moments in in Chopping Mall, and uh, but no, it's neat. It's, it, you never would expect to see this, but hey, I'm not complaining. I I have to agree. Like I said, I watched these first five minutes where Paul and the Paul Bartel and Mary Warnov make an appearance as the Blands. Uh, the only way we really get to know this is because Mary has a, a hello, my name is M Bland sticker on her chest <laughs> that, that that's the only connection we get to this movie but i have to say that you know uh at the beginning of chopping mall they are sh- the mall itself is showing off these robots that are going to be their security force and it keeps cutting back to paul and mary going hmm could we use this for the restaurant and in probably another comedic line that i left hard as i did with the rest of eating raul is that when they reveal the robots, there's three robots. I cannot stress enough that these robots look identical. All three robots are exactly the same fucking robot. And it cuts to Paul and Mary, and Mary goes, they look like the three stooges. And Paul says, I don't know. The one in the middle has an unpleasant ethnic quality about him. (laughs) And this this is fucking comedy gold. Because they all—they're the same fucking robot, copy and pasted three times. It's amazing. <laughs> it is very funny. I don't know, Mary. The one in the middle has an unpleasantly ethnic quality. Yeah. So uh, if if you like eating Raoul, watch the first five minutes of Chopping Mall, 
and you will see our same characters. And I have to mention, because at a certain point when the, the narrator or the, the uh, presenter, I should say, of these robots says, like, these are an upgrade and a new age and era of security forces for establishments, we cut back to Paul and Mary, and Paul says, maybe we could order one for the restaurant to keep out the people we don't like. And it, it, it is, it's their characters. It's, it, they have the restaurant. This is, this is like the direct sequel to fucking eating Raul. It's amazing. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's great. Absolutely delightful. All right. Other than that, was there anything else you wanted to talk about eating Raul, bonus features or not? Or are we ready to get into our questions? I'm ready to get into some questions, Rob. Okay. And um, uh, I've been waiting for this for a few weeks. Like I said, Zach and I were going to record this, but we got interrupted by the goddamn swingers. Uh, But for the first time, something I've wanted to do for a long, long time, and I'm just finding the right place to do it, is that for my answer to Cinemodities and Late Night, I am going to quote a very famous author, none other than James Joyce. My answer is the same for Cinemodities and Late Night Movie, and I felt that this was exactly where I needed to fit it in. If you've ever read Ulysses by James Joyce, you know it's a very abstract novel. There's a lot that goes on from chapter three, where um, uh, the main character, uh, Leopold Bloom, is masturbating behind a rock to a woman in a bikini, which is why it was banned in the United States for a few years. Uh, But I am not focusing on that. I'm not masturbating to this movie. I think to Zach's uh, uh, happiness. He doesn't want me touching myself while we're recording. I am actually going to quote the final sentence of James Joyce's Ulysses for both Cinemodities and Late Night. So here we go. I was a flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used or shall, I wear a red, yes, and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall, and I thought well as well him as another. Then he asked me, would I say yes, to say yes, my mountain flower, and I first put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts, all perfumed, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said yes, I will, yes. I'm putting this in the spreadsheet, just so you know, Zach. I have this memorized. I did this, just so the audience knows, I did this from top of the dome. I didn't write this down. Ever since I read Ulysses, even though Ulysses is inferior to Finnegan's Wake, I, the last sentence, the last chapter, I should say, where it's about the wife who's cheated on our main character for the whole book, realizes why her husband is so important. Hell yeah. Bringing it back to Cinemodities and eating Raul. You can cheat on your husband, but realize he's the best. Ulysses and eating Raul, they're right in conjunction with each other. This is something I memorized years ago, and I've been waiting to use it. It is one continuous sentence ending with, as I said, yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. It is, it is exactly how I feel about this film. If you want to cinemodities it, if you want to late night it, I've never used those as verbs before, but I'm going for it. Fucking absolutely. You are the end of Ulysses. 
This is fucking the perfect example to use for it. I can I can feel in my heart. I, I, can't, I can't see Zach right now. We do audio recordings. We don't see each other. But I can fucking feel his eyes rolling right now. <laughs> if so only Cinemodities and Late Night, I got a whole quote for. Get ready for the spreadsheet, Zach. It's going to be a whole fucking block of text in my answer. <laughs> All right, folks. I'm going to be a bridge to make up for this. Yes to both. Moving on to <laughs> snacks. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Rob I'm glad goes over you his say, time a lot, man. I have to make up the difference. So I'm glad you yes say to yes both. to both. I'm glad you say yes to both. So snacks. All right, I'm gonna oh. make my I'm gonna make my snack concise because considering that he's gonna go on a 15 minute diatribe. You know so, it. <laughs> yes. So I want the frying pan in the restaurant. We cook all of our stuff in the frying pan. Even though we're killing people with it? Yes. Like, isn't that a little weird that we're killing people with the same frying pan we're cooking in? Well, we didn't kill anybody. They killed them for the frying oh, pan. Oh, yes. For legal purposes, we haven't killed anybody. Um, we've turned them into food with our magic demon camera. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's not killing in the eyes of the law, right? No, it's it's a mystical device. That's that's It's outside the, ba- the, the boundaries of the law. <laughs> now... Now you're hitting you're hitting what I love, Zach. Anything we do that's outside the boundaries of the law of the law, hell yeah, let's do that more. Damn straight. All right, Rob. So what? Eighty five snacks. We have every single swinger. We have the like the jacuzzi, all the like. I would imagine you're going to explain every single person that's murdered in this film so, and how each of them's a delicacy. So I I actually have I have a few I have a lot of snacks as Zach is correctly saying. But, you know, something that I missed the boat on is that when I wrote these snacks down, it was when I was recording a few weeks ago when I watched this movie and I was recording snacks because that night and I didn't go back while I did for my notes today. I went back and I watched this movie and I filled in my notes to make sure I knew where they lived. I didn't do this for snacks and I'm kind of upset by this, but at the same time, it might be glorious. So I'm going to run through my snacks. And maybe together you and I can uh, fill up where the weirdness comes from. I think the first one is simple because I know where it comes from. Um, the first snack I have is lighter fluid, $1.50 per pint. That comes from Paul Bartel as the wine worker where he says that this wine made me sick. I would rather sell lighter fluid for this amount. So we should sell lighter fluid for $1.50 per pint. And I'm not saying our audience needs to drink it. You know, if you need lighter fluid for whatever purposes, this is a pretty good price, right? I don't I don't know. Do you know lighter fluid prices? I do not, Rob. I do not have the, the so, current market for that on my, so in, on my computer. In 1982, $1.50 per pint. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad, but we're keeping it today. We don't we do not do inflation over here at Cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, inflation happens in how much flesh you have to give us, not how much money you have to give us, right? Sure. Uh, the next thing I have is one I really need your opinion on because I, I, I honestly cannot remember, even after watching this movie today, where I got it from. Uh, the next snack I have listed is milkshake with ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember where this? Oh yeah. Like why? Yeah. Can can you expand on this? Where where the hell do we get a milkshake? Where the hell do we get ketchup? What? I think this shows kind of the ex the excess of it all, just the craziness of everybody. Okay. Was was there a scene in this movie where we do milkshakes? Did that happen? It's the beginning part of the montage. 
Oh, okay, okay. I get behind that. In the first like uh, two minutes, there's a shot of like a milkshake, and someone's like dumping ketchup on it. Oh, it's part of the I... montage where you see the woman getting tackled into the car. You see the uh, the guy stealing the newspapers out of the the, the the bin. Oh, see, okay. I totally, I didn't connect it with that. I was thinking of the um, the um, the movie aspect, like the meat of the movie when we had Paul Bartel and the wine store. No, nah, this is stuff, this, but... this is part of okay. that intro montage. So, so I guess my next question for you is, um, uh, one, well, you know, Zach, I, I don't, Rob does not eat milkshakes. Rob is allergic to milk. Yes. Um, Rob loves ketchup though. Have you ever had a milkshake with ketchup on it? Have you ever done that? No, Rob, I have not ever put ketchup on a milkshake before. On a, on a sub question, have you ever dipped French fries in a milkshake, which I know no. is a lot more common. That's, no. that's something people actually like. Yeah, I know. I, they're crazy. No, thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I love that. I am very not anti on, fr- French fries going into milkshake. Not, very not anti. Only, not only do we run a restaurant, but we belittle people in our audience for their food choices. Yeah, I love straight. That. Um, for, the next- for, their, for their food choices, we do a lot more belittling than just that. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> the next thing I had, I know it comes from the movie. Um, the first night where Paul, uh, Paul and Mary are expecting the real estate agent for their restaurant, uh, she says, I'm making chicken cacciatore. And and this this might be the most tame of all uh, restaurant items I've ever suggested. I want chicken cacciatore. Have you ever – do you know what chicken cacciatore is? I've had it before, though, but it's not particularly a dish I'm fond of. It's uh, it's so you – got, you got some chicken breasts, like some chunks of chicken – Mixed in with a tomato sauce with some peppers, some seasoning, some onions, that type of thing. Um, I think growing up, you know, for me personally, um, my my you know my my mother is very Italian, and so when I would hang out with her family, chicken cacciatore was a big deal. Chicken cacciatore is fucking amazing. Like I love chicken cacciatore, and I think we should have that in the restaurant. And to expand on this, is that um, uh, for for Zach's well not well-being, but his interest is that there was one time I uh, sent an email to Bumpa. Mm. And uh, Zach knows who Bumpa is. I have. I don't think anybody in our audience knows who Bumpa is. But I sent an email to Bumpa, and in that email I talked about chicken cacciatore. That my mom was making it or I was having it at some gathering. And I will never forget, it was years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, where I sent this email to Bumpa and he responded with me he responded to me and said, I am fucking shocked by the fact that you spelled catchatory correctly, but you used the wrong form of your in this email. Like, Bumpa was a grammar Nazi to me because I used the wrong form of a possessive you know, noun or verb or whatever it is, but I spelled catchatory correctly. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chicken catchatory is great. Bumpa. Yeah. The next snack I have is uh, comes from the end of the movie. Is uh, well, no, I think uh, actually the beginning. Sorry, when um, the real estate agent shows up and uh, he meets with Paul Bartel in the living room, and Paul Bartel is like, "I heard you know," or the the real estate agent says, "I heard you and Mary fighting. Is everything okay?" And he goes, "Yes, it's fine. We're just making veal." And he goes, "Oh, I love veal." And he goes, Paul Bartel says, "Well, the veal is actually for tomorrow night." So you're gonna get chicken. So I want on our rest. I, I want on our menu specifically 
very firmly, the text on our menu is going to say veal for tomorrow night. Like, I, I want somebody to want veal, but they're going to have to come back the next day and survive the fucking goddamn abstract double dare obstacle course we've created for them to get that veal the next night. You can only order the veal for tomorrow night. What do you think? I liked, uh, <laughs> I like that sequence in the movie, but I'm not sure how it works at the restaurant. For whom veal I'm for tomorrow night. Veal for tomorrow night. Veal so tomorrow for tomorrow, tomorrow night. I don't know. I know I'm not doing a good job because I'm repeating myself, but feel for tomorrow night. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Feel for tomorrow night. Uh, the last two I have, um, we need, and when I say need, I, I cannot stress this enough. On our restaurant menu, in our restaurant, a true menu item, we need the bland enchilada. <laughs> because in this movie, like I said to Zach the first time I watched it, I didn't – the first time I watched this movie, I didn't realize that the last name of our main characters who want to start a restaurant were bland. I didn't, I didn't get that that was their name. So when I watched this movie for the first time, we get that scene in the bedroom where it's like, oh, even if we open this restaurant as a country diner, we can still serve the bland enchilada. And I had to pause the movie and lose my fucking mind over the fact that I thought they were saying they were going to serve a bland enchilada, like an enchilada with no seasoning. But that's their name. And not only is that their name, the bland enchilada is their signature dish. They're, this is apparently the greatest thing they make. Like Mary's special is the bland enchilada. I, I want to taste it. I want to feast on it. I want to serve it. We need the bland enchilada at the Cinemodities restaurant. Made by Paul and Mary Bland. I don't care if it's made from human meat. Fuck it. I don't give a shit. Fucking just serve it. We need the bland enchilada. Right? Yes, Rob, we do. And the final snack that I have, it's not a snack, but it's an addition to the restaurant. I want... Paul Bland. I want the character. <laughs> not not just as a walk-around character, but something we've never talked about in the Cinemodities restaurant history. We have a lot of walk-around characters. We got Nelson De La Rosa punching people in the balls. We got Richard Stanley casting curses. Uh, that's just what comes to mind. I'm sure we got a few more. Uh, what we got the... Uh, oh, well, tune in a week, six weeks, seven... 12 weeks from now, and we're going to have Harrison Ford running around killing animatronics. I want Paul Bland as our official Cinemodities restaurant sommelier, the connoisseur of wine. So if anybody at the Cinemodities restaurant wants to order a bottle of wine, they have to get Paul Bartell, Paul Bland, to come to their table and describe to them what goes good? What pairs with wines? Because for anyone that's not, fami not familiar, a sommelier is a wine connoisseur. And restaurants hire sommeliers to give the best wines that pair with the best dishes. And I want Paul Bland to be our sommelier. And this, this does, before Zach responds, this does contradict something I've said before. Because very, very early on in this podcast... 
I mentioned Crudbump, the greatest artist of parody rappers ever, Crudbump. And there is a fantastic song by Crudbump that says he is a sommelier in the song Expert Chef. I can make a little snicker bar salad. All you need is snicker bars and a little talent. Pair it with a piece of chicken pate and tell the sommelier to speak Francais. I'm the expert chef. I don't want him to be our sommelier. I want a true fake movie character to be our sommelier. So if you want to order some wine, you're going to get Paul Bland over to your table, and he's going to tell you that Mountain Brook makes you sick, that Chateau Lafitte is a grand experience. He's going to let you know what wines pair with whitefish, what wines pair with oily fishes like salmon, and what pairs with your filet mignon. We, we need some class up in this shit, Zach. And Paul Bartel is going to deliver that to us. What do you think? Folks, I apologize for the amount of flourishes this episode. I don't know what he took before he recorded this episode, though, but the amount of flourishes and everything you, you he said. said to this, that- you said this for like seven months, like not consistently, but like, oh, there's a, like every month there's an episode where you're like, I apologize. Rob <laughs> has thought too much, too much about our fake restaurant. And the only response I have to that, Zach, is that it's not a fake restaurant. And we need <laughs> I, didn't say fake, I didn't say fake restaurant, <laughs> but I apologize. We need a sommelier. We need, oh, yes, we need the sommelier right, speak yes, Francais on the I expert agree. chef. Make it end. Make it end, folks. Make it end. Um, okay, Rob, that's great. We're going to have all these things. We're going to wrap them in a big bow just for you. Um, uh, just- like, like we said in the private parts episode, the uh, the Paul Bartel series was Zach's idea. And he Rob hijacked it. Every Rob, moment of his yes, life. Yes, I do. <laughs> Rob hijacked my series. I might, I might have to hijack back May from Rob. Um, well, this, this, I think <laughs> next week nothing's going to change. We're going to talk about another Paul Bartel movie. Oh, God. Typically one that involves Divine. So it's going to be crazier than anything we've ever seen. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my oh, God, Mr. fucks. Eggman, why haven't the eggs shown that, up? No. That, was, that, that wasn't Divine. That was... I, uh... I know that wasn't Divine, but Divine was in that movie. <laughs> oh <my laughs> Rob, how are we getting this episode? How are we getting this episode, Rob? Uh, very nicely. The opening intro of this movie has some great music. Let's play that in reverse. I think that works perfectly. I agree, Rob. End of episode. Oh,